Ricardo's Literary Licensed Podcast episodes. Ben Stokes here, exploring all things Collinsport, Maine, and following the likes of the Collins family, and the friends and foes, with your co-hosts, Tom Diamond, Jesse Fultz, Mickey Ray, and Keith Chalgo, Collins family, story about blood relations, literally. Welcome to Let Your License Podcast, and it's season five in our first episode for Dark Shadows, which are covering episodes from December 1968 to January 1969. Today we have with us Mary O'Leary. Hello, Mary. Hi, Keith. And Vicki Ray. Hi, everybody. And Tom Diamond. Here I am. How are you guys? And myself, Keith Shago. Unfortunately, Jesse's not with us because he has a deviated septum. <laughs> You can't Hoffman. tell anybody nothing, man. Seeing Dr. Hoffman for that. She's giving him a set of this. <laughs> so we get started with our Dark Shadows episode. Let's find out what we've been up to. And starting with you, Mary, what have you been up to since last time we spoke to you? I have been working for two years on a documentary about actor Jonathan Frid, who we all know and love as the character Barnabas Collins. Yes, uh, It has been a, quite a journey for me, having never done a documentary before. I really had to figure out the exact steps to go through. I knew they would have to be interviews. I would have to create questions. But the, the big part of it was, what is the story? How, what is the story I'm trying to tell? And once I formulated that over a process of weeks, I was able to structure what the story would be. And I had a wonderful time working with my marvelous editor, Michael Giglio. Uh, he is in Woodbridge, New Jersey. Um, so this is during COVID, of course. We, we worked a long distance, and he was this amazingly talented patient editor who didn't know Dark Shadows or Jonathan Pritt at all, wow. which was really helpful. At, yeah. So that was really helpful because when you're so close to the project, it's good to have that person who can have an objective eye. Um, So that was really terrific. And uh, we took uh, interviews from many different people, um, actors from Dark Shadows, Christina Pickles, who was his co-star in Seizure, Anthony Zerby, who he worked with in theater, um, and Dick Cavett, who uh, not only, of course, interviewed Jonathan four times during his time on Dark Shadows, but Dick Cavett had gone to Yale. And in fact, I didn't even know that they had been at the American Shakespeare Festival together. So he had amazing stories to tell, as well as another friend of his from Yale. It was a gentleman named Robert Kelson, who was the founder of the Chelsea Theater Center in New York and was the artistic director for 30 years. And he had some wonderful stories to tell. So that, that was great, too, to just hear some of these stories I didn't know or de- I maybe knew but didn't know the details. And also going to Canada and talking to family members and and learning a bit more about some of his latter years. Um, and it was just an amazing journey for me. I uh, was very close to Jonathan for almost 10 years. We had a business partnership in Clunes Associates under that banner. He toured one-man shows across the country and up into Canada. And we had a marvelous working relationship. He really was a 
great man to work with in terms of he had a strong sense of integrity, um, and he expected that from me, and I gave it to him. Um, there was a great sense of trust and uh, loyalty. And for me, this documentary really is my homage to Jonathan um, in, in memory of all, of all those wonderful memories I have of working with him. And I'm hoping people get a little insight into this man. It covers his whole life, <laughs> and um, which is, uh, 87 years is a lot to cover in about an hour and 40 minutes. Okay. Um, but I, I just, it was an amazing journey. I had some wonderful conversations, learned some things about his family that I didn't know, but sort of supported things I didn't know. So I'm delighted to say it will be released on Tuesday, October 5th on Apple TV. Um, it is a situation where you go on and, and buy. Um, it's also in a, uh, it, of course, I know your listeners, Keitha, from <laughs> practically all over the world. Apple TV is available in the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, and Ireland. Um, so because it doesn't cover everything, there's other platforms that it will appear on. Uh, some, again, are just in the United States, such as Voodoo Fandango, um, uh, but also, um, if they can't find it that way, Amazon is selling. Um, so um, the right now, MPI is selling the DVD and Blu-ray on Amazon. Uh, so that is right now in pre-sale, so that pre-order, so that people can do that now. And on October 5th, it will be shipped out. Um, and... Uh, mm-hmm. Um, I hope that people will enjoy it, and uh, I'd love to hear comments after. Um, right now, it's just a, sort of a very exciting time, nervous energy, waiting for it to come out and uh, uh, and, um, and get That'd the reviews. Now you're We're having a preview. Now you're having a preview on October third through uh, the Facebook yes. MPI. You want to talk about that? Yes. Uh, yes, there is. There is going to be on Sunday, October 3rd um, at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Central Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, a one-hour special um, in which four actors who were on Dark Shadows, David Selby, Laura Parker, Marie Wallace, and Jim Storm, will be there with me and a, a host named Mark Dowalski. And we will discuss the documentary, and there will be some clips shown as well. Uh, people will get a little flavor of what's in the documentary. And right now, I'm asking people to send in questions uh, around, of course, the subject of Jonathan that may be presented um, during the program. It's going to be on YouTube, so it's actually MPI Media Group's YouTube channel, youtube.com, MPI Media Group, Sunday, October 3rd. That's great. That's great. That's wonderful. So you've I mean, been. I think that what you should tell our um, um, <coughs> well for Apple TV in the UK, um, Ireland, and in um, the States. If you don't have access to this, if you are a game console, whether it's PlayStation or Xbox, you can get Apple TV um, through um, an app through that you can download. So therefore, you can watch it on your big television. So you don't have to watch everything on your computer. Also, T-Mobile, T-Mobile right now it is giving you a year of Apple uh, TV for free if you're a, a subscriber to T-Mobile. Just so you know, it's free for a year. In the UK, you get the same oh, thing that. as I, well. I, I got to call them. I'm, I'm, I have been on T-Mobile for 20 years. All you do is set it up. They never even told me. Shame Uh-oh. on them. <laughs> I've, I've been watching it for free. Yay. 
Now, Mary, on the Jonathan Frid um, documentary that you produced, will there be any extras or will it be a um, a regular Blu-ray? Yeah. Both both the DVD and the Blu-ray have bonus features. Um, One of the special bonus features is um, in my research, I knew that Jonathan had done a production of Henry IV Part One on the stage uh, off-Broadway in 1960, and that it had been recorded for what I thought was a PBS uh, program. Well, my research revealed, in fact, that I located it. Um, it was a series called Play of the Week. It was actually on for two seasons, 59 to 60 and 60 to 61. And the host was a producer named Worthington Minor, who's son, Peter Minor, went on to direct Dark Shadows, or oh, yes. interesting little oh, yeah. uh, six degrees of separation there. Very interesting. He's the sort of Alice, uh, he's sort of the Alistair Cook, and he sets up the play, and then it is recorded on the stage, and he chose particular plays that had been on Broadway, off-Broadway, and then right after closing, got the cast together and recorded it. So what happened, of course, in, in some cases, actors might have had other commitments to go to. So in the original production that Jonathan did at the Phoenix Theater uh, Broadway, uh, Fritz Weaver had played the king. Well, he wasn't available. And a few of the other roles, too. A Hotspur, which is a central character of Henry, um, was originally played by Edward Sheeran, who went on to direct Law and Order. Um, and his wife was out, Jane Alexander. But he is not in this presentation. They did have to recast his role as well. But they just probably had other commitments. But it was such an incredible find to watch this. I mean, all I kept thinking is I wish Jonathan were here to watch this. Um, a friend sat with me, um, and we watched it, and she said, wow, I can understand everything he's saying. I mean, he really was an amazing voice for Shakespeare and understanding of it. So um, we had to license this, and we cost was prohibitive. Um, so we got 20 minutes. In the documentary, you see about a minute of it, but in the bonus feature, you see the other 19 minutes. So I think anybody who really, truly um, uh, loves to see Jonathan perform, it is uh, absolutely a must-see to that as the, the first significant bonus feature. Uh, then there's a couple of other um, interviews with him that um, are, are not currently available online. And um, uh, there's also a, there was a video uh, many years ago called Best of Barnabas um, that is on there. And, oh, yes, Jonathan did a three-minute recording, a very abridged version of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, Oh, in 1991. Cool. And what it was for, um, a communications company that doesn't exist anymore, MCI, uh, wanted it as a oh, Halloween yeah. treat. Call, call, call this 1-800 number, and then you'll hear this recording. So um, Jonathan and I had um, you know, worked on abridging the story, and then and in the studio we put in some sound effects. And... Um, uh, that recording was really only heard by you know, a certain number of people that called in. And so all these years later, I had kept a copy of the original recording. And uh, so that is also one of the bonus features that I put to pictures because obviously it's just audio. Um, and it's a very good recording because I had a copy from the master. So uh, I would definitely say there are some great bonus features. So it really uh, pushes to you, you to decide to buy the DVD and the Blu-ray. 
It's great, Mary. And uh, I just want to say, you know, I mean, I originally met you in Jonathan's apartment when he <laughs> gave those, um, or when he, he needed an audience when he was doing uh, Fools and Fiends. Uh, and uh, it was uh, it was really great after knowing you in the 80s to reconnect with you all those years later uh, a few years ago when uh, they had the Dan Curtis retrospective uh, in New York and uh, it was it was as if the time had never passed and uh, it's it's extremely gratifying from the standpoint uh, from my standpoint as a fan as well as a, a podcast co-host to know that you're keeping his memory alive because he really was an extremely intelligent guy who could talk about anything. And I still remember that about him. And um, so good for you. Good for you. And and you're keeping it alive for all of us. We're very grateful. Well, thank you, Tom. And, yes, I do remember those days in his apartment. He wanted to have an audience, as any true actor on the stage. They love their audience. And he wanted to have them there, and he wanted feedback. He really wanted to get criticism to, or get, or certainly ideas uh, from the people who were there. And it was in the beginning, Dark Shadows fans that uh, Will McKinley would invite, Nancy Kersey would invite. Um, I myself was working at Guiding Light, and I invited some of the actors or crew people, um, come on over this evening and hear a reading of a new one-man show. Um, so it was an important part of our development process. It was great, and it was something to always remember. Um, anyway, Keith, you're the boss. What do we do now? Well, what we're going to do is now go to the other people and find out what they've been up to, like yourself, Tom. What have you been up to since last time we spoke to you? Uh, nurturing my aches and pains, uh, like an elderly Jewish guy will do, uh, regarding a... Uh, a severe left wrist injury that I sustained. Uh, and uh, my fiance, who is a nurse, uh, reminded me that nine months ago, while I was uh, coming out of a bar restaurant with a couple of, uh, with a couple of shots in my, under my belt, I fell backward. And I cushioned, uh, in order to cushion the fall, my hands uh, went out and back of me. And uh, I didn't feel anything at the time, but now with all the typing for my, uh, you know, during my PhD studies and now with my, uh, with my adjunct professor work, my wrist started killing me. So I've gone to an orthopedist, had a couple of shots. Uh, I'm talking about injection shots uh, and uh, some physical therapy. And now at least my wrist looks normal again. Uh, so I'm just trying to catch up and, uh, my adjunct professor work in real life, uh, is, uh, proceeding apace, but, but I always, uh, enjoy, uh, getting back to dark shadows and in, in prepping for this podcast, since we are doing twice the work now and we normally do, I had a chance to rest my wrist. So uh, thank you, Keith, for giving me that opportunity. And uh, I am now, <laughs> I'm now, I'm now rare to go, rare to go. So thank you for asking. And that's what I'm doing. I'm just glad you didn't hear it during the podcast. We had a special guest at the beginning of the month, um, Barbara 
Bekaraman. She's a published author. She has Jamie Quinn mystery series. Last time she was on our show, she leaned over to pick up her notes and she broke a rib while recording our show. But look, it's super. Yeah, that's what she was talking about. Did you pick that up when when she was talking about I I picked something up, but I didn't pick up rib breaking. Oh my God. Yeah, while she was on her show, but carried on to the end. That can be very. (laughs) If you're listening, you are a trooper, man. You're not kidding. That can be very painful. My father had that. Broke his wrist, and I mean that is t- because that does not heal. I mean it heals, but you can't do anything about it. So you know you just gotta let it sit, and sooner or later, you know. Oh my God, uh, she must have been in pain. She's a trooper. Trooper. I'm just glad that yours, um, yours. So I imagine they injected you with what forty milligrams of Depomedrone. Uh, it was actually um, what I do. It was a Kenalog. Kenalog. Uh, oh, Kenalog, yes. It's yeah. a, um, little bit better, actually. And that was, well, and that was, uh, I finally gave into that because my initial thought was that the needle was going to be a one gauge, which is like as big as the, as big as Bella Lugosi's fangs or something. And so I didn't want to get injected at first. So I decided to go for physical therapy, worst decision I ever made in my life because he, twisted and pulled and decompression and oh my god i went through such agony and then i said finally forget it i'm gonna go for the i'm gonna i'm gonna go for the injection and an injection cleared it right up and they had to give me an injection of my thumb so that's what happens when you get a little older and uh but thank goodness the worst is over and i'm and i and i'm here to and i'm here to talk about it uh so uh so thank you for asking but other than that I am looking at All in the Family right now, which is, uh, it's just, it just came out on IMDb all the years, all the episodes. And so it, it may sound kind of corny, but it's an iconic classic. And, uh, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing that you cannot do today what was allowed back then, uh, in the early seventies when this kind of thing was groundbreaking and iconic. So that may not be that might not be horror, but I am still looking at Once Upon a Time, and uh, with uh, with my fiance and Once Upon a Time is uh, is uh, really 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 well done, and uh, I'm surprised it was only seven years. I think we should have gone to twice the length. So uh, that's where I am. Mm-hmm. And what about your son, Vix? What are you even up to? My life is not near so exciting. Um, <laughs> honestly. Uh, I've been reading a lot. I kind of got into that habit of reading. I've been reading a lot more than usual with uh, since we started those classics and now we're doing the other stuff. I've been reading James's novel. I'm halfway through that. I want to get his other one. I really am enjoying um, his book and the yeah. uh, yeah, Appalachian, the titles eluded me. Help me, Appalachian. Something or other. Oh gosh. And I've got, it. I don't have my Kindle with me. Sorry, James, if you're listening, but I'm really enjoying it. And anyway, um, I've been reading that, and then I've been reading the ball, and then I've been going back and forth between Asher Soccer and BMX and everything. And uh, I watched a movie the other day go, Clint Eastwood, I love Clint Eastwood, but Cry Macho, I don't know if you had a chance to watch it yet, but it was really good. He's 90 years old, and that guy is still kicking it. Totally love all of his movies. Anyway, Creep Show came out last night, finally. Finally caught up with that, the first episode. It was weird, as per usual. And um, other than that, we're just kind of trying to enjoy fall and we've got a few personal projects going on and uh, it's just life moving on and 
whole 85 today in Texas. It's 40 degrees or 30 degree difference. Well, I woke up as 51 today. So if you want to talk 104 last week, there's a 50 degree difference. So, uh, yeah, but we're just looking to move it on and, and Halloween. And I'm waiting for Joe's uh, Halloween list because I go off of his Halloween movie list. So, Joe, if you're listening, get that done. Other than that, not much. Keith, what have you been doing, hon? Well, I finished my tour of the game release, which will be out in two weeks on the 12th of October on Xbox, PlayStation, and computer. Shameless um, so plug. Out and it's um, <laughs> shameless plug, yes. And it's sold <laughs> 2 million pre sales. So, yeah, we're doing quite chuffed on that. So, that my game will be out then. Back for Blood, available to you. <laughs> to a store nearby. But, um, but then, um, as you know, I've signed that three-picture deal with Remissius, um Studios. So right. now going through the scripts that I sold them and modernized them because they were written over 25 years ago. So now I have to like, modernize them. So that's what I'm doing when I spare time. Other than that, watching this and that, finished watching on Shudder, the, um, uh, what's it called, Stalker? Um, oh, I was going to start watching that. Stalker. That looks good. Watching Slasher, which I'm um, starring David Cronenberg, a Canadian series, which was fantastic. I watched, you know, finished watching that. So, and other than that, watching bits and bobs, but nothing really comes to mind to brag about. So, no, yeah. except yeah. that malignant movie everybody's freaking out about. Yeah, or listening about Erica Jane on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills and going down that YouTube hellhole. Yeah. <laughs> 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 At least the one next thing is like, oh my god, I'm really into this. But it's hard to believe that the film that they based Aaron Brockovich on, that guy is a totally... I know. So what we're going to do is we're going to cut to the bloopers, and then we'll be right back to discuss Dark Shadows. Hello everybody, Tom Diamond here. And we've got a big job today. We're now in our new schedule for Literary License Podcast. And this is going to be a hopeful synopsis of episode 636 to 680. We're now doing double the work that we used to do before. Let's go to the stars here. You know, 636, as we started to point out in the last block, was the last episode for Robert Rodin as Adam. May he rest in peace. And uh, it's kind of sad to see uh, him disappear into the door of Professor Stokes's apartment. Uh, and the last we had heard, he was, Professor Stokes was going to take him to a clinic to get his scars taken care of. So hopefully that had happened. 637, we have uh, the appearance of Tom Spratley as the Justice of the Peace finally marries Jeff and Vicky as Jeff and Vicky finally get married and uh, Tom Spratley uh, was born on uh, April 11, 1914 and I have East Orange, New York well that might be East Orange, New Jersey and he died in Encino, California June 10, 1987 Uh, Tom Ray R-E-A-Y was his middle name Spratley and he Starred in The Hitcher in 1987, Sudden Impact from 1983. He was actually in Ferris Bueller's Day Off in 1986, and that was a popular one. Uh, TV shows, he was on Little House of the Prairie, uh, Dallas, Highway to Heaven, 
Sudden Impact, uh, as I said before, Charlie's Angels, Max Rubin Returns, and City Heat. So, uh, episode 637 also marks the last episode of Roger Davis as Jeff Clark, although, as you're going to see, he does continue as Peter Bradford. And uh, then, of course, we have uh, Denise Nickerson, who uh, uh, graces us with many episodes, uh, starting in 639 in this particular block. 640 marks the first episode of Alex Stevens, the stunt coordinator for Dark Shadows, who played the werewolf. And Alex Stevens was Frank Sinatra's double. And uh, as a treat for those fans who are listening, next month in October, uh, we interviewed Stacy Polos, who is the surviving niece of Alex Stevens. And uh, it was a very nice interview, and we're going to be broadcasting that in October. But Alex Stevens was... There he is. Alex Polos, obviously, is his real name. And uh, he was born on January 6, 1936. And uh, he owned his own stunt company. He was very, very into it. He was uh, in uh, Superman in 1978. Um... And uh, he was in Superfly and uh, Aaron Loves Angela, whatever that is. Uh, He was in a number of things. And, of course, the Dark Shadows fans recall his appearance on the old What's My Line TV show, uh, which is really the only time you saw him taking off his werewolf makeup and uh, seeing him in real life. And uh, you can always catch that on Facebook if you decide to go there. Uh, 640 also marked uh, the extra uh, uh, the extra Carol Ann Lewis who played a uh, waitress at the Blue Whale. Uh, she was born on uh, December 21st, 1939 in Shaker Heights, Ohio. And she was in Route 66. And uh, uh, Simon is Forever in 1970. And in a couple of uh, couple of things here and there. Uh, she didn't do a lot, but of course her claim to fame is, uh, is for Dark Shadows. Okay, and uh, 644. Now why is 644 a monumental episode? Well, I'll just keep listening. I'm gonna, hopefully I'll do this right and you'll know why. Oh, that was too loud, wasn't it? Yep, 644 is the first episode of Quentin's Theme. And that, of course, went on to become the one of the top ten in the year 1968. Now, in case you're wondering how I was able to do that marvelous sound effect, uh, I have... The <laughs> I have the Dark Shadows a snow globe. Uh, it's, it's a very, very nice thing. And MPI had that for a little while. I don't know if they still do. And you can see Collinwood. It's a little, little thing of Collinwood. And uh, you press a button and it will play Quentin's theme for you. So yes, episode 644 was the first episode of Quentin's theme. 
and episode 646 were was a monumental episode because they marked the first appearances of David Selby as Quentin's ghost and Terry Crawford, otherwise known as Terrain Crawford, as Beth Chavez. Uh, both, of course, ghosts. What can we say about David Selby? Uh, his career is absolutely legendary in terms of uh, what he has done and uh, uh, I can you know right off, right off the bed of Dark Shadows is one of his first uh, was really the thing that uh, you know that he got his claim to fame uh, so to speak and uh, there he is okay uh, he was born February 5th 1941 in Morgantown West Virginia and uh, he's very well educated. Uh, he has his PhD from Southern Illinois University and also his BS and his MA, obviously. Uh, his 1961 stage debut, uh, stage debut was in Brigadoon. He's been in Brigadoon, Oklahoma, um, Mercutio and Romeo and Juliet. Uh, last, and of course, Last Days of Lincoln. Uh, he loves to play Lincoln. Oedipus Rex, Inherit the Wind. Uh, Crap's Last Case. I wonder what that is. Of course, after Dark Shadows, uh, his career really took off uh, up the sandbox with Barbara Streisand, uh, which was really a famous Super Cops in 1974, which was a very big movie for him. And uh, Girl in Blue, 73. And, of course, TV, many, many TV appearances. The Waltons, Policewoman, Kojak, Family, Washington, Behind Closed Doors. There were a few Dark Shadows stars in that miniseries. I think Lara Parker uh, was also in that in Theodore David. Flamingo Road, of course, in 1980. Falcon Crest in 1981. He took over the night soap opera shift. And, uh, yes... He did do a guest cameo in Johnny Depp's Dark Shadows in 2012. Uh, say no more regarding that. Uh, Terry Crawford, interestingly enough, I don't know if a lot of people... Uh, know, Terry Crawford, uh, after Dark Shadows, got her Ph.D. in clinical psychology. And she got her Ph.D. at Long Island University, the Brooklyn Center, which had a very good Ph.D. program in clinical psych. How do I know? Because that's where my alma mater is. And I remember hearing stories. Uh, the Ph.D. program in clinical psych back then, they would only take you if you went full-time during the day. And I understand they made a special allowance for her while she was going to school, uh, being such a big star on Dark Shadows. So I think she went at night to school, which was really good. And she's been involved in a lot of uh, social services efforts. And I know she had a private practice in Georgia uh, for a little while. And she's still around. And, of course, so is David Selby uh, to uh, regale us uh, with, with Quentin's theme. So let's continue now. Okay. Kavada Humphrey. That's a very interesting uh, actress. She played Janet Findlay, the medium, uh, from episode 647 to 650 when she was killed off. And, it, you know, it's kind of a shame because uh, she was really, really very good on the show. And I, I remember a lot of fans saying they had hoped that she would uh, have had an ongoing role with the show. That would have been really, really good. She was kind of the successor, if you think of it, to uh, John LaSalle's Dr. Peter Guthrie, you know, who um, was around during the first year of the show. 
Uh, Kabada Humphrey was born uh, June 7th, uh, 1919 in Atlantic City, uh, New Jersey. And uh, Kabada Humphrey uh, does have a distinction. She was in Thoroughly Modern Millie in 1967 and uh, starred in Robert Montgomery Presents back in the 50s. Uh, she died in July of, of 2007 in London, England. Uh, 647 is also the first episode that we see the card, the Tower of Destruction. That's going to be a very, very pivotal point later on in the show when they go back in time, but we're not going to talk about that yet. Okay, moving right along. Episode 650, Vicky and Peter finally go into the past. And episode 650 is therefore the last episode of Betsy Durkin as Vicky, who had 10 episodes on the show. There will be one more Vicky, and we're going to come to that in a minute. Uh, but we move on now to 656, and Bob Fitzsimmons is the actor who plays Mr. Jarrett, the Undertaker. The plot regarding Liz finally... Uh, dropping dead and uh, being put into her, that special coffin. She's really alive, but nobody knows it. And Mr. Ja- and Bob Fitzsimmons has the famous blooper of walking into Collinwood, seeing Barnabas and calling him Mr. Jonathan instead of Mr. Collins. Uh, and of course, that obviously refers to Jonathan Fred. That was a real, that was a real humdinger of a blooper. Now let's see what we can find out about uh, about him. That's me turning pages, by the way. Aren't you thrilled? Okay. Um, <laughs> there's really no information about him. <laughs> I didn't even have to turn the page on that. Okay. Episode 658. Kind of, kind of bittersweet. It is the final episode of Joel Crothers as Joel Haskell who's really been with the show from the beginning. And uh, that character is taken off to Wincliffe in a straitjacket. Apparently, he's very, very good at having nervous breakdowns, Joe Crothers is, and after he sees Chris turn into a werewolf, and yes, Don Briscoe is really taking prominence in his block. So after he sees uh, Chris turn into a werewolf, he goes nuts. And uh, we uh, also, however... He's not forgotten because Joe, because Joe Crothers will make uh, will come back, and we're going to get to that in a minute. The show is going back to 1796, and Joe Crothers comes back as Nathan Forbes. But that is the absolutely last time that Joe Crothers appears on Dark Shadows uh, as as uh, Nathan Forbes. Now uh, Vince O'Brien graces us once again as Sheriff Patterson. He's in a couple of episodes and. 658 is uh, the first one in this block where we see him. 659. Well, Craig Slocum is back as Harry Johnson, but not for too many more episodes, uh, and we're going to go into that in a second. Um, so now 661, and they're back in 1796. Vicky number three is pl- is played by Carolyn Groves. She was a pretty good Vicky. She's the last. Uh, she's she's really the last Vicky uh, that we see, and uh, she did a 
she did a she did a well, as I said she she really did a pretty good job. In fact, the entire 1796 sequence was I think extremely well done. And uh, Dan Curtis directed all the episodes uh, for that. He was starting to chew his teeth as a director, and uh, so he directed every episode. And Thayer David who came back as Ben, wonderful portrayal, uh, did all the opening voiceovers uh, for uh, those episodes. So, let's see what next. Okay, 663. Uh, again, 1796. Audrey Larkin plays Crystal Cabot. That's one of the newest doxies that's around his bites. And let's see if we can see anything on her. She was born... April 1st, 1931, in New York City. She was married to John Larkin. She was in Perry Mason, an X-1. Sounds like a cheapy sci-fi flick from 1955. She died uh, February 18th, 1994, in L.A. And um, so, let's see what else we have. Um, we have... Okay, well, 665 is the last episode of Carolyn Groves. And as Vicky, and with that... That's the last episode of the Vicky Winters character, and that is truly that—that that is truly a sad event. Now, 664, they hired 11 actors uh, to do a reprise of the hanging of Vicky Winters. And yes, I came prepared for this one. Okay, Tony Goodstone is the bailiff. He was born November 15, 1934, and he was born in the Bronx. Anthony Morgan Goodstone was his real name. He was in General Hospital, I guess, back in the 60s. He was also in some Heart to Heart with uh, Robert Wagner and uh, Stephanie Powers. He died March 30th, 2002 in L.A. He was also in Hunter. So uh, it's interesting. He had a couple of things. We talked about Audrey Larkin. Timothy Gordon. There he is. Timothy Gordon's always coming back, doing extras, and Barnabas is Hamble. This time he played a spectator. David Groh is back as the hangman's assistant. And David Groh came to fame much later on when he portrayed Joe, Rhoda's husband. Valerie Harper was in Rhoda in the, was it the, not, was it the 70s, I guess it was. Uh, not too much later. Uh, and, but David Groh got his start on Dark Shadows. James, Had, James Shannon, excuse me, was back as the hangman. And Peter John... Jan Van Yet is a spectator, born May 12, 1945 in Rochester, New York. And he was in Dark Room in 81, Enos in 81. Uh, in the Nero, I guess the Nero Wolf pilot in 1981, which uh, featured Thayer David, which you really don't see anymore. Uh, it's a shame. And he died uh, May 22nd in 2018 in Ontario, Canada. So, yes, so those are all the people uh, that were in that episode. Okay. Uh, and, uh, in episode 666, isn't that fun? Uh, that's the devil's uh, mark. Uh, where they actually come, where Barnabas actually comes back to uh, 1969, and uh, they needed Josette so the two extras that have played Josette in the past, Natalie Norwick was on as the ghost of Josette and Florence Stanley who we have spoken about in the past was on as sobbing Josette Edward Marshall was the successor to 
uh, oh my god, oh my god, Harry, Craig Slocum's Harry Johnson, unfortunately, may he rest in peace, and Edward Marshall uh, was actually, from what I understand, recommended by Catherine Lee Scott, she knew him from acting school, uh, or was one of the acquaintances, and she recommended him to, uh, to, uh, to take over the part of Harry Johnson. And he got it. And in episode 674, Beverly Hayes plays Donna Friedlander, the uh, werewolf's werewolf's latest victim. Let's see if we find anything on Donna Friedlander. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Is this going to be another one? No. Okay, so she was born September 20th, 1940 in, let's see... Uh, she was in Black Box in 2013. Uh, she was in something called Picture Bowl, uh, Marathon. I think I've heard of that one. And uh, some in- some interesting stuff. She may still be around. She was Carolyn's friend, and she didn't do too badly. She had a crush on Chris Jennings, and uh, you know it was good writing. You know she, she says to Carolyn, "Yeah, I always fall for the moody guys." And then when uh, she she literally threw herself at Chris and invited herself to her uh, to his house, she really really had asked for it. And then when she realized what was happening, she said, "Yeah, that's me. I always wind up with the crazy ones." Uh, so that's kind of funny. So that gives you and uh, so those are all oh, and they're a lot. They're a lot. So uh, Clive Blackburn, of course, uh, lends her ear as Mrs. Johnson, providing comic relief. And now, let's see what we can find. Let's take selected bloopers. Because otherwise, if we're, if we're going to all the bloopers, I'm afraid we're going to be here all day. We mentioned one of them, and that was Bob Fitzsimmons, Mr. Jonathan, which was kind of famous. It's a kind of interesting. I just caught this on episode 680. You know, David has his bulletin board in the living, in the, uh, in his room. And, uh, we, we catch a, <laughs> the camera focuses on a note on the bulletin board. Chicken Little was right. That's cute. Episode 638. I could swear that there is masking black tape on the floor. It looks on the floor of the drawing room of Collinwood. It looks like they're trying to block out the scene. Uh, and, of, and of course, look for the mic on, in, in episode 636. Look for the shadow of the mic above where the down from Prince Julia, in episode 638, refers to Collinwood as Collinswood. Did you notice, by the way, that when Vicky and Be- Betsy Durkin is Vicky's threatening to jump off Widow's Hill, I could swear it looks like one of those rocks on Widow's Hill looks like a face. Uh, if you if you look next time and you've got a big screen, look towards the left-hand side of the screen and you'll see that rock that looks like a man's face. Also in that episode, as uh, Liz is being stoked by the werewolf, yes, John Bennett's here, of course, we talked about that, uh, you will see a shadow of a boom on one of the rocks in the forest. Episode 639, the question comes to mind, how is an entire wing of a mansion, the west wing, entered by just one door? Don't they have any other? And yes, and actually there is another entrance, but we don't find out about that until later in the block, and that is in the drawing room of Collinwood through the secret door. Now, there are some various historical goofs, um... In episode 639, David mentions Thaddeus Collins to Amy, who supposedly died in the Civil War. Now, later on, the show was going to go back to the 19th century, and you don't hear any mention of him. 
And at another point in time, of course it's established that Jameson uh, Collins is the father of Roger and Elizabeth. And they talk about a letter that Quentin wrote to Jameson uh, in 1887. We're going to find out later on that Jameson Collins, when they go back to the 19th century, is a is a boy, and it's played by David Hennessy. So, if that were the case, and this letter were written in 1887, he would have had to have been a very pretty precocious child, because he would probably have been two years old, if anything, when Quentin wrote to him. Be sure to look in episode 640 for a, you know, there's a storm in the woods, and there's a lightning effect, and you'll actually see uh, the row of vertical lights that is mimicking uh, the lightning effect. This is a rather obscene blooper if you have a dirty mind in episode 640. David Hennessy kind of makes a verbal goof. And, in, and instead of saying, I don't like to see my relatives, he starts to say, I don't like to feel my relatives. Well, he doesn't say relatives, thank goodness. Uh, well, I don't like to feel my relatives either, so, so there. I agree with Dave. You're also going to see cues that the actors are waiting for in terms of when the camera starts rolling. And uh, sometimes they wait a little too long. And in episode 640, Chris waits until the camera starts, and then he starts towards the door. He waits a second too long. You can really see that he's waiting for his cue. And interesting, if you look at the credits, they do something for a couple of episodes in this block that they've never done before. They will start out shooting one scene, uh, you know, usually an, an, an interior scene, as the credits start rolling, and then uh, they go to another camera. It's a totally different interior scene, and they do the rest of the credits. That never really happened before this block. It happens twice. We also, uh, by the way... We, we should mention a couple of unknown directors that actually did a few episodes on this block. One is Penberry Jones. Uh, if anybody knows who he is, let me know. Another is Dennis Kane, and that's somebody else. Henry Kaplan, however, we do know about, and he did start directing episodes in this block. And Henry Kaplan is very, very famous. Uh, David Selby loves to talk about him uh, in terms of his direction of Quentin. Some of the lines uh, between Amy and David, who are now getting into endless, do you want to play the game? What's the game? In episode 643, uh, when Amy says, you're braver than I am, David, and David says, well, that's because you're a girl. That sounds like something right out of the Bowery Boys. Now, in episode 644, 645, of course, we see Quentin's room, and we see what is supposed to be the skeleton of Quentin. And the thing I want to know is uh, when we first see the skeleton, it has a brown wig on that looks like Eve's wig, by the way. After a couple of episodes, the wig is mysteriously gone, and now the skeleton is bald. Whatever happened to that wig? At one point in episode 645, when Liz and Barnabas are leaving the old house, uh, the Quentin scene music uh, starts to play out of sync with the scene and is uh, somebody very quickly catches that and stops that music and by the way that skeleton does look like Eve's skeleton so that skeleton is certainly getting a lot of mileage in 645 
Amy, uh, Denise Nickerson misses a cue. She she asks Dave. Well, maybe it's David that misses a cue. Amy asks him why he is smiling. He hasn't started to smile yet, but once he asks him, then he starts to smile. I'm not sure whether Louis Edmonds in episode 646, and yes, he's on for a few episodes before he mis- before he goes off to London on a trip, and is practically gone for the rest of the block, probably uh, doing going on Broadway somewhere. But um, during that time, uh, right before then, uh, David and Amy have to explain their unexpected absence, and David gives this story about them playing military man and uh, and. And and Louis Edmonds uh, gives him a gives him a mock salute while he's smirking. Uh, I don't know whether that was actually in the script or not, because uh, it kind of looked like he did that on the on the fly. It was good. In episode six fifty one, Julia is going down the stairs, and I think she almost tripped, and she kind of caught herself. She kind of skipped down the stairs. By the way, and if I have mentioned this before, I'm just going to mention it again. And I think I did. Great dream sequence, uh, the last episode of Joe, Joe Haskell, and he dreams that he meets what he thinks is Chris Jennings in the mausoleum. Turns out to be Tom, the vampire, and the last appearance you will see of Don Briscoe in the character of Tom. I thought he came back, I said that last episode. And and at the, then at the same time, you have Alex Stevens as the werewolf, and that's the only time that Alex Stevens and Don Briscoe act in the same scene together. Usually, Don Briscoe's turning into Alex Now, you may remember that uh, Liz, in episode 655, a false prey to Cassandra. This time, they finally bring back Laura Parker as Cassandra uh, for a couple of episodes. Uh, before, when Liz had a dream about uh, her own impending death, it was Angelique uh, as a in her vampire outfit. But this time, she comes back as Cassandra. And she's wearing a green jacket. And later on, when Liz gets up, you just take a look at the, uh, it's kind of like a table near the dresser in Liz's room. And it looks like the jacket that Cassandra wore is on the, uh, is on that table. By the fireplace. Left by the fireplace. In 656, I don't know what's on... In that secret door, when David opens it in the uh, drawing room of Collinwood, but it looks like on the wall there's some modern painting, and it looks like it's like a blue sky, uh, kind of an avant-garde uh, neo neo painting. What is that doing uh, in the secret room? Some maybe one of the maybe one of the uh, crewmen put it put it there. Note in episode 657, this is a, apparently one of their cameras was malfunctioning in terms of color, and all you saw was tint. Every time they went back to that camera, you saw this like blue-green tint. And uh, speaking of blue-green, the lighting effect on Liz when she was in the coffin, uh, seemingly dead but yet alive, was, was terrible, and I do say this in the podcast, she, she, it looks like uh, she's getting an ultraviolet suntan, 657. Josette's music box opens mysteriously and starts to play Josette's theme. You can very easily see the string pulling open Josette's music box. This is, I don't know if you call it a blooper or not, but it's certainly prophetic in episode 659. When David uh, 
And David, of course, talks to Quentin through the antique gold telephone. And he picks it up and he calls it a spirit phone. And I believe uh, Spirit was a was a phone company that was around uh, 20 years ago. I don't know if it's still there. But David foresaw the existence of a spirit phone by at least 40 years. So in episode 660, I don't know if there's a blooper or not, but David and Amy find Vicky's grave in the uh, cemetery. Of course, they don't know it at that point. And uh, at first they find a new grave, then it's covered over, and then there's a big hole, like it's being dug. So which is it? And you will note, and I think it's Peter Bradford's grave, yep, uh, 1795, the five is written in a magic marker. Looks like uh, episode 662, looks like Joshua is, oh, Joshua's gone to Bangor, and uh, at one point you almost see a stagehand closing the door to Collingwood, almost, but not quite. You can see a couple of closed caption bloopers. Also, by the way, if you do look at closed captions on a closed caption on Amazon, and uh, one of the things you see is that when Chris is emoting, he takes Matthew Morgan's cottage. Matthew Morgan is talked about, by the way, uh, in uh, in this uh, to make uh, to make everybody remember that it was Matthew Morgan's cottage at one point. But the closed caption when Chris is speaking refers to him as Matthew. And the other kind of hidden blooper, Carolyn at one point is on the phone with none other than Frank Garner. Not Frank Garner, excuse me, Richard Garner, the father. Richard Garner, and we think it's Richard Garner because she calls him Mr. Garner, the old family lawyer. But the last time we heard about Richard Garner, Liz had fired him because uh, he didn't want to go ahead with... Uh, the plans for the tombstone that Liz wanted. So if she fired him, now all of a sudden Karen's, Carolyn's talking to him. Well, she must have rehired him while Liz was dead. Remember, by the way, in the 1796 reprise, uh, Nancy Barrett once again plays Millicent Collins and, and uh, Grayson Hall for one episode portrays Countess Natalie Dupre and her French accent, which she had so, which she did so well when they first talked about the earth, is completely now and totally missing in this episode. Now, I still kind of wonder, and we talked about this, we're going to talk about this very briefly in the podcast, but I still kind of wonder, when Barnabas came back in 1969, and of course he was uh, put in the coffin, the coffin was chained, and when he first woke up, uh, you know, Julian and Willie had to go get him. And when he woke up, he was in his 1795 regalia. The next thing you know, uh, when we're looking at him, he's dressed in a 20th century suit and tie. Maybe they brought a change of clothes for him, but I didn't see it. Did you? And that's 667. And in that, we have the return of something we haven't seen in a long time in a blooper baby since the first year. The return of the teleprompter, which is seen as uh, Barnabas talks with David and Amy. Uh, it's yellow. The, the sheet is yellow in color. Those teleprompter bloopers used to be in black and white. Now we see the teleprompter for the first time in color. And yes, big blooper. Uh, 
in pure Fritz speak, Jonathan forgets himself and is talking with Amy and he calls her Carolyn twice. And in episode 668, David moves to blow out Amy's candle. And it's he obviously was very, very good at it because the candle wasn't even lit and he pretended to and he and he just blew it out. Or he at least blew in that direction. But the camera but the candle wasn't lit. Six sixty nine, classic wine by um, Mrs. Johnson. Oh, by the way, I just found something about Edward Marshall who replaced Harry Johnson. He was in 9 to 5. What do you know about that in 1980? Uh, Fun with Dick and... He was in Fun with Dick and Jane. Darktown Strutters. And The Hand. And he's also been on Nickelodeon. I guess. So Edward Marshall has some a, a couple of things to his credit. Anyway, Mrs. Johnson says... I'd like to meet the man who invented supermarkets and wring his neck. Now, there's a, that's a pure Mrs. Johnson line. You can't. Only Mrs. Johnson could say that on Dark Shadows and get away with it. 672, when uh, Barnabas is examining Liz. Oh, and isn't, and isn't Julia something? She pronounces Liz dead twice, and then Liz walks into the drawing room to... Uh, but anyway, uh, Liz says that she has a weak pulse beat, uh, or maybe that's yeah. I think that's I, I think that's Julie talking about Liz. Well, you know, you'll, you'll usually hear pulse. You won't hear pulse beat, uh, as far as medical terminology is concerned. And kudos to Amazon Prime that picked that one up. Episode six seventy four. You know, in the opening of this episode, the last scene is staged differently from the first scene, and that's because they had two different directors and two different writers. And so what you'll see is in the last episode, Amy was wearing... Uh, well, well, actually, Amy was wearing a jacket over her dress, and, and Chris, uh, Don Briscoe was Chris, was more pleading with her and uh, empathic. And then they did the scene over. Chris is very aggressive with her, and uh, the uh, coat she was wearing has been uh, removed. We don't see that. Also, she was burning Chris's shirt. And in the first scene, the shirt was burned partially. In the next show, the first scene, the shirt is totally burned. Uh, and that is because they had different directors, different writers in the show. I understand was filmed. The, the two shows were filmed in reverse order. Yes, we've come to our final blooper. I have a feeling... Keith is going to really edit this one. Uh, anyway, uh, Liz, in episode 679, says, it's a voice blooper. I think David can be a very serious... David is a very serious problem. So there you go. And with that, thank you for listening to all of this. It was a long stretch because we've covered twice the amount of episodes that we usually do. Uh, by the way, I hope that you have listened or will listen to the interview of David Selby, which uh, was uh, recently done by uh, my co-hosts Vicky Ray and Jesse Fultz, and that was released a few years, a few weeks ago. And uh, so, with that, thanks again for uh, for being faithful, and let's get back to the show. Hello, welcome back to Literary License Podcast, and we're discussing Dark Shadows from December 1968 to episodes through January 1969. Dark Shadows, Scene 1. Victoria gets married, Jeff fades away, 
Professor Stoke tells Victoria she can only be with Jeff. If she dies, Jeff returns, and Victoria and Jeff fade to the past. What are your thoughts of Victoria getting married, starting with you, Vicky? I feel bad for her. I mean, I, you know what? I'm actually liking these two new actresses and this... this uh... Bessie Durkin and Carolyn Groves. Yeah, yeah. I was like, somebody help me here. Okay, I really, they're really not bad performers, and it was kind of, I mean, not that you know, nothing against you know. Alexander, Alexander. Yeah, I need more coffee today. Clearly, but uh, I love, I love Alexander Moltke's performance. But it was kind of nice seeing the other two ladies do their thing. But uh, she's really, I thought she portrayed Victoria really well. But as far as Jeff fading away and you got Professor Stokes that, you know, saying, I I don't understand how I'm trying to figure it out. Okay. So if they're supposed to go back into time, don't they know that all that stuff's going to happen again? Or was she projecting herself into a different year? Hopefully. I don't understand what happened to the governess who was hung. At the end of the story. Yeah, exactly. What happened to her, too? She's disappeared as well, which is a good point. And, you know, you just got all this stuff going on. And you, you kind of knew that. There's a lot of holes going on, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have more questions than answers for you, I guess, this this time around. <laughs> well, the writers have forgotten about Phyllis Wick completely. And uh, that's something that they hope the fans will forget about also. But unfortunately, they didn't. But because of the immediacy, in my opinion, that everybody wanted to see Victoria marry Jeff. And it finally happened. And it was one. Well, she was suffering so bad. It was like I was I was heartbroken for her after a while because she missed him so much. And everybody yeah. knows like first love. Oh, my God, your heart just breaks and your hormones are going well, all over the place. And, and I got to give kudos to Betsy Durkin. <laughs> I got to give kudos to Betsy Durkin. Uh, One of our first loves was actually more age appropriate for her. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Well, there you have it. You guys think that, but it was age. Love doesn't have an ID. And I think back then in the day, I think women really actually are attracted to older men sometimes. I mean, let's face it. A little more maturity. So, you know, quit quit picking on Mitchell Ryan. Okay. I know. (laughs) I'm not picking. I know. I'm kidding. I miss him. I think if she wound up with Frank Garner, they did like a love relationship. And then you Frank Garner's another one that disappeared. If if she wound up with him, she would never have had all the nonsense that she's going through and all the angst and all the and all the terrible, oh Peter, where are you, Peter? You know, that kind of thing. I thought the acting was great though. But you feel heartbroken for her because everybody knows what that's like when you miss somebody terrible. I personally don't think they should have let Betty Betsy Durkin go. Because I think that she did, you know, give her all to it. I think that she did the appropriate angst and, uh, and she was really, she was really, really, um, she was good. I liked her performance. But, but they wanted to get rid of it clearly. They wanted to get rid of the Vicky character. Do you have any comments on that, Mary? What I was going to say, having produced soap operas for many years where an actor makes to leave the show and the actor's in the middle of the story, they decide to recast, sometimes it goes well and sometimes it doesn't. Right. Some, some fans are very adamant about, no, that it can only be played by that particular actor or actress. So it's very difficult to step in the shoes 
of any character, but to step yeah. into the character who was the focus of the original show right. and originally mm-hmm. all voiceovers originally until after said, well, you know, if that actor's not in the episode, you have to pay them. So they said, okay, well, use somebody who's in the episode. Sorry, Alexandra, you don't get to do it every time now. It is very difficult. So they may have been getting a sense that either actress what it wasn't going well. They may have decided when Alexandra said she wanted to leave, she was pregnant and wanted to go be a mom for a while, um, that they may have decided, okay, we are, we'll, we'll just try it, but we're going to end the story. And it may have been in their minds, and, but it just took a while to get it on the page. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's hard to say. I think that um, in terms of the writing, I mean, some writers might have felt when Victoria went back to the past, that somehow she changed things, so it wasn't problematic about Phyllis, although we know we did see her, you know, her head, but maybe they thought that in the way she had changed history and then that was she was now the governess in 1795. Oh, I don't yeah. know again. Maybe. If, yeah, so she belongs to that. Running around clearly she she did love Jeff, and so I guess the thought was, well, we'll send her off. But it's also interesting that they then turn a character that they like into a governess who, as far as we knew, her only job was being in a coffee shop. So I don't know what kind of educational background she had. Yeah. um, But I remember that. Um, Yeah, well, that comes later, obviously. But the the point is is that as far as uh, this particular plot was concerned, um, I think that... Even and even the Professor Stokes character admitted he should never have told her that she could only be with Jeff if she dies. What uh, what a mistake that was! Because all of a sudden, Vicky runs to Widow's Hill and wants to show uh, wants to throw herself off the cliff. Yeah, everybody uh, wants to throw themselves off of Widow's Hill. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always there, and the widows return. The widows. Uh, they need to make them more epically noticed with their. I mean, because you, it just sounds like wind. You don't hear any wailing. I, I'm looking for banshee type. Well, the wailing kind of ended after um, it went into color. After it went into color, no more wailing from the widows. So um, maybe, maybe the maybe the widows are just more prone to black and white than they are to color. Maybe they couldn't get possibly. on. Possibly you probably couldn't get on with um, Technicolor candles. Maybe that was it. But that was certainly, but that was certainly, you know, getting them back out of the blue. There are a few things. Uh, and, and of course, this is another scenes, but they talk about Matthew Morgan all of a sudden out of the blue, which we haven't heard of in, in a couple of years. Uh, they Tima makes a phone call. Carolyn makes a phone call to Mr. Garner. Uh, to, to Richard Garner in another scene. And uh, whatchamacallit, uh, Liz supposedly fired him uh, a couple of blocks ago. So all of a sudden, Carolyn's calling him as if that never happened. So, you know, once again, you see the disconnect with the writers. They don't really remember what they did. But getting back to scene one, I, I, I think that that was a good prelude to what you're going to see in terms of a reprise to 1796, which, and they updated it a year from 1795 since it was a year later. And we're going to talk about that later on. But, um, I, I think that the, you know, the, the last scene where Barnabas and Liz walk in on Vicky and Jeff 
you know, and Jeff is saying, I came here, I, I'm, your love brought me back, and I'm here for you. And he's wearing that puffy shirt from 1795. And he, and, and you know, they, 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 they take each other's hands and they're going to kiss. And all of a sudden the, uh, you know, the chroma key effect fades too soon as they're about to kiss, uh, which would have been a lot nicer if you had seen it. But I, I, I particularly think in terms of everything that went on, I think this was probably effective uh, as, as opposed to some other stuff that we're going to talk about later. I have to sit and say what I did find weird is that, when Betsy Durkin takes over the role of Victoria, she's only, you're only looking at seven scenes or seven days. Yeah, not total. much time. She, ten episodes. She was on ten, ten episodes. episodes. I'm wondering is why didn't Alexander Moki just stick around for those ten episodes? Isn't it? Because he's like, didn't she look kind of tired to you though? I mean, observing. Not, I'm saying, ten Maybe. days. Doesn't, I mean, I mean, well, ten, ten days, days. I know, but have you ever been <laughs> pregnant? <laughs> You get tired. You smile. just wanted out. She wanted out. So I'll be selling my story rights. And Patrick, yeah. Patrick Swayze or someone like that would have played me as a pregnant guy in a mind. TV <laughs> they, have pre- they have pregnant emojis now, the men. Remember also that she she had a five-year contract and she broke it and she was allowed to break it two oh, and a half years after it started. she broke her contract. She broke it two and a half years after it started. I- had that not happened, you would have seen Vicky on for a lot longer. And I think if Alexander Moti had gotten pregnant, what if, what if? But if Alexander Moti had not gotten pregnant, I think you would have seen Vicky on for a lot longer. And you wouldn't have seen Betsy. So talk about what if, and if this hadn't happened, and if this hadn't, mm-hmm. if history had changed. What were you going to say, Mary? Mary, it's Go ahead, Mary. I'm surprised to hear that Alexandra would have had a five-year contract. Yeah, Most that's what I saw. Are... That's what I read. That's Where what did I read. you read that? Uh, I read um, that in, uh, God, uh, I had, I, I had read that somewhere along the, somewhere along the Facebook stuff. Uh, it may have been darkshadowseveryday.com, but I don't want to say, uh, specifically. Was it unheard uh, of for a five-year contract, Mary? It is, it is unheard of for a five-year contract in yeah. daytime. Um, yeah. Usually but, it's two, three years. Um, Jonathan's original contract, of course, was just for three months. Right. Um, there are times actors come in short-term, um, mm-hmm. but um, the show doesn't want to commit to them because of obviously... If something goes awry in the story and they decide they want to kill a character, it's always in favor of the producer. Did it have anything to do with the fact that it was back in the late 60s and they had longer contracts based on that particular? Because remember, when she, she was the linchpin of the, uh, of the show uh, from day one. And so she may have negotiated a very good deal with them. Of course, I, I don't can't think speak so. Okay. That, but she was not an established. She wasn't Joan Bennett. Joan right. Bennett, um, right. with her years, um, had uh, was paid well. Again, I mean, we're talking about only hundreds of dollars an episode at this uh, very different time. But um, no, I doubt Alexandra would have been on a longer than a two or three year contract mm. because she's a novice, as was Catherine Lee Scott, mm. and they were just out practically. Mm. So I would say no. I I don't. Okay. I really. Probably hard to believe. And the fact is, also, I just want to say, remember, Dan Curtis was a very 
strong, powerful producer. Yep. And if you said he wanted to leave, um, then he probably said, then just go now. Um, I mean, example, of course, Catherine Lee Scott, when she said, I'm now married, I'm going to move to France, my husband's a right. time life photographer. And he right. was not happy about that either. I mean, he didn't want to to lose certain actors, but particularly Alexandra probably was tough, but she was pregnant. Uh, what would they have addressed that now? Yes. Some soap operas you hide using the cameras, uh, the character being, if the character's not pregnant and the actress is now, sometimes they've written it into the storyline. Um, That's what they did that, with Diana yeah. Malay as Laura. She re- That's what- now she really wanted to, she wanted to leave. Um, I know yeah. she is in a, an interview where she said, they once called about bringing her character back, and she said, right. but I don't want to just go goody two-shoes. Right. Right. And just going to the scene you mentioned, well, I've got to die to be with my lover. I'm going to be Juliet, and I'm going to kill myself. Well, you know, you're a grown woman. You're in your 20s. Would that really have been your only choice? Um, but again, now we're looking at the period of time and women's roles in society. But um, I, I don't think that was a great choice uh, to be okay. making. Of course, yeah, wrong, poor advice from Professor Stokes, but... Um, again, um, the writers, especially with daytime, you never know what might happen in, in an actor's life. I mean, I was working on Guiding Light when wonderful, handsome, young leading man um, went on the weekend to go hand gliding and crash into a tree and had brain damage. And, you know, they had to recast the role. It was an extremely difficult emotional situation for everybody in the cast. Can and I ask you who that in. character? Who was that character? I used to be religiously watching Heart, the Guiding Light. Um, the character was Hart Jessup. Oh, um, wow. which was, it was so that was when was that late eighties? Yeah, um, and well, I didn't know that. Just, yeah, so the source is hearsay. So my source is hearsay, and I agree with you on that. But the uh, but but the bottom line was is that she did leave. Um, you know. She did leave for that reason, and uh, from similar hearsay sources, and I, and I, and I, well, of course, you you heard it directly, but I also understand that she she really would have preferred an evil to, to be brought back as an evil character, perhaps a vampire. She really or a character who had more color to her rather than yeah. just sort of the one. Yeah. Oh, uh, the, well, it seemed know, like I don't understand. It seemed like everybody else got a chance to be somebody different or, you know, whatever. They just didn't let her. Is there, was there a particular reason or? Well, she, she was the, to be the, the virginal ingenue, isn't she? And unfortunately, when you're the ingenue, you're always going to have, you're always going to be the naive person that everyone's going to pick on because you're the ingenue. And though the ingenue is always kind of the star of everything, the ingenue is always the most boring character anyway. And you have to have the ingenue in every single show that you do. You know, unfortunately, the people who got more of an evil or a darker twist are a lot more color to them, a lot more fun to play. Gotcha. Because there's a lot more facets to your personality. But when you're right, there's more. There is. You know, like you know, Angelique. Well, I mean, you could take your pick. You can either be Shirley Jones or you can be Joan Collins. Right. (laughs) True. Good. Yeah. True. Good. Good analogy. But um, yeah, I just seemed um. This thing caught a shame because the Victoria character could have been more interesting. I don't, it, for me, I guess, this is that it felt very, very rushed. And it would have been nice if they, yeah. they Betsy didn't come to breathe into the role because by the time she left, it's like you got used to it and you quite, it's, she kind of had it and she kind of, she's kind of like bringing a Victoria Winters vibe, but at the same time, bringing her, 
bringing her own uniqueness to it, but, which kind of giving it a bit more for the kind of an homage in the way that to Alexander Volsky because as soon as she left, uh, they really wanted to get rid of the Victoria character. It was kind of like we were saying that without Alexander Volsky, there was really no reason for her to stay on a long term basis. And that being said, I think that that Betsy Durkin really uh, was under. Uh, she was she was under the gun, and uh, she gave a great performance considering. And, I thought uh, she did a great job. I really enjoyed yep. watching her. But yep. maybe this has something to do with. I'm also thinking that because Dan Curtis had to recast Mitchell Ryan, didn't he? And they put Anthony yeah. George in the role of Burke, and it didn't work. Right, I mean, right. that was Anthony kind of. A, I mean, it worked fine when they went back in time, but it didn't work. Right, right. So I'm kind of wondering with this without Zeta Moki, and it's okay, fine. We got to finish these scenes up because we got to write her out. We'll bring this person in. And he probably didn't think it would work. And, but that by that time, you kind of already jumped in, you've done your script and everything like that. And you have to kind of go with it, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it was very hard for Dan Curtis to fire Mitchell because they had been friends. But yeah. he you know, was a terrible alcoholic problem. And that's why he had to be let go. Um, but um, also, yes, Betsy, that's the thing is when you do a recast, you've got to give it a little time for the audience to accept it and right. move past, as I mentioned earlier. Sometimes they don't move past it, but at least give more than 10 days, which makes me think that, pa, you know, Alexandra said she wanted to leave, um, and they said, okay, and get somebody else. But right away, Dan may have said to the writers, figure out how we're going to wrap this up. But she wants to go. I'm letting her go. We'll have somebody else, and we'll finish it. So maybe that was it came up right when she decided to leave the show. Again, hard to say. They're not here to ask. Did she not have any intention of coming back, guys? Is that you know? You know, what I think, you know what I think it might be actually, and I'm not. You know, this is speculation, but I know when it comes to producing um, daytime um, soap operas or soap operas in general. A lot of times it will happen if the actor says that they don't want, they want to leave the show. Right. And if it, if it ticks the producer off, they'll kill that character off so that way they can never come back. Like, fine, you leave, you're never coming back. Or what they'll do is if they go, okay, well, you know, that's fine. We'll let you go. I'm feeling charitable. So what we'll do is we'll get you in a taxi and you'll, you'll drive off. And that way, if you ever want to come back, you come back. So it might have something to do with. You know, it all could hinge on basically um, what what went on with that conversation with Alexander Moki. Just told Dan Curtis she wanted to leave. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. but they did give her an out, didn't they? They I mean, did they give her an out, but there's a possibility because it's Dark Shadows that she can always the character could always come back. Well, it also would have been wonderful to have gone back and revisited the story. As was she the long lost daughter of uh, Elizabeth right? Yeah, they never daughter. picked that up. They never picked that so, up. Had stayed, perhaps they would have revisited it if they were bring, what you know, when they did discuss whether they're bringing her back. But literally, suddenly, then the show was canceled, so it never happened. But perhaps they would have reintroduced that story at that time if she did come back. Um, but she was adamant, from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mary. But she was adamant in that she the only way she was going to come back is if she were portrayed as an evil character, and if uh, Vicky had become a vampire or something like that. That she would have got, that she would have bought. But she didn't want to come back as the goody two shoes saying, I don't understand and so forth. And of course, the whole, the entire cast coming, the entire cast wound up saying, I don't understand. Uh, and, and you hear that even Barnabas says, I don't understand. Uh, but, but she, well, w- go ahead. Go I ahead. was going to say, 
the interview, which is on one of the DVDs as a bonus feature in the coffin set, um, mm-hmm. she said that she received the call from Layla Swift, who was producer at the time. This was very right. towards the end of the season. And she says, uh, they asked me to come back, and I said I would like the character to not be a goody two-shoes. That doesn't mean evil. I mean, perfectly nice people make big mistakes that have serious consequences. She didn't want to play one note, which I respect. But then she said, but then nothing happened because the show was canceled. Um, Mm. But I think... Uh, yeah, again, if she had stayed on the show, might the writers have, yes, she was the female ingenue leading player, but maybe they could have done something where she's married, well, had an affair. Or her. Well, wouldn't she be that time? So they probably back in time. partner, from what you see in these episodes. <laughs> so, I mean, but she would, have grown, she would have grown, actually, if they did bring her back, wouldn't she? Because she'd be married. Right. Yeah, well, again, it's like, yeah, yeah. what would they come back with? Jeff, would he have been, you know, would he have been killed somewhere along the way? She had a portrait she didn't age. Uh, so. Yeah. True. Um, and, I mean, to be honest, if she, you know, she's living in 1795, um, 1796, depending on which episode you're watching. I mean, if she came back to, you know, present day Collinswood and she lived in those days for two years, she's going to be changed. I mean, she's, I mean, you know, this is a woman who's going to be having a pound cleaning her clothes against the rock. Yeah, <laughs> true. No, no, well, no. Uh, you don't have a whole lot of what you call a... Uh, of your conveniences. Hy- hygiene issues. <laughs> All <laughs> kinds of stuff. Dental. <laughs> well, also, of course, the... It was a time in the story when Barnabas went back into the past uh, for a couple of days and he wanted to save her, right, from being hung. Uh, right. And so he, to, he, yeah. he says, I'm going to change the past. Right. I mean, he, can't change his, he can't change his being cursed, but he, try, he changes, um, and really he doesn't change much, but he definitely tries with, like, Nathan. Nathan has... It changes history in a scene he has with Nathan. So there are slight changes. But so in a future storyline, maybe Barnabas goes back again and something changes history that brings her to the present. I mean, this helped with actually with all the supernatural, there's all kinds of stories they could have come up with. But um, the character was gone and they moved on. Dark Shadows, Scene 2. Elizabeth hears an animal growling in the woods. Joe is attacked by a werewolf. Chris begs Joe to shoot him where he turns into a werewolf. Joe is attacked and has visions of Tom as a vampire and Chris as a werewolf. Carolyn gets attacked by a werewolf. Amy burns Chris's bloodstained shirt. Carolyn's friend Donnie gets attacked by a werewolf. Sheriff takes Chris into custody and Barnabas tries to provide an alibi. Chris tells Barnabas about the first time he changed into a werewolf. The spirit of Quentin Collin tries to poison Chris. Beth Chavez's ghost warns Amy that Quentin is trying to poison Chris. This brings us to scene two. So, Tom, what are your thoughts of scene two, which basically is the werewolf storyline? Well, I think, you know, there are obvious, when you look at all the scenes, there are some scenes of work and there are some scenes that are absolutely boring. But it's, but one, one good thing about, uh, the the werewolf introduction and Don Briscoe as Chris Jennings 
is it does give him a chance to emote, although he does look a little bit like when he's turning into a werewolf, it looks like he's having an epileptic fit of some sort. And that is kind of, you know, but, 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 you know, but what he's really trying to do, it's, it, the whole thing is a, is a ripoff of the Lon Chaney, uh, wolf It's a major ripoff. <laughs> <laughs> a- absolutely, but as or, and, or Michael Landon. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Landon. And what else is new? And I was a teenage werewolf, Michael Landon. But what else is new? And uh, you know, and you gotta give Don Briscoe credit because he really puts his he really puts his heart into the in, into the role. Uh, I love I think, Don Briscoe. Yeah, he I think is, the best part of that. Say, he is a handsome man, and it's rare to see someone this handsome on this show. I mean, this guy. I know. He's like, go- totally like, hot. It's just like uh, about time. Well, there you go. And, <laughs> and I think the best the best part uh, of that whole sequence. away. <laughs> best part of that whole sequence, and give Joe Kravis credit, because Joe Kravis goes he's once again he's wearing his full suit again and uh, for a couple of days and uh normal and he's out of the hospital uh angelique what angelique did to him is now forgotten he's normal for a couple of days then he goes nuts again it goes normal says, for a couple of days for a couple of days then he goes nuts. All over again. that's right then he goes nuts <laughs> again when he sees chris turn into a werewolf he yeah. goes really nuts this time, though. I mean, he isn't near as nuts when the undead was feasting on him, but now he's really tripping out on this wearable thing. <laughs> it was very obvious that they realized that this was the talent that Joe Crothers had to portray a lunatic, and I think they 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 they, they took this to, they took this to the fullest. But that dream sequence that Joe has, where he meets Chris's Tom Jennings. And then the, and then Alex Stevens as the werewolf. And that's the only scene, by the way, in which Alex Stevens and Don Briscoe acted together right. in the same scene. And, and, and that was just, that was just pure. That took the, some of the other stuff in this block, which is extremely boring. That took it to a new level. And, uh, and the, you know, and, and of course, they had the, the friend Donna, uh, Donna Friedlander, uh, who got attacked by a werewolf. And she was a pretty good actress for a day, for a day role. You know, she was saying, you know, Chris is my type. He's, he's very moody. And then, <laughs> and then I mean, she was pretty much throwing herself at him, like, take me, take me. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, she liked him. She liked him. She, she practically. Put herself in, the, in in his in his house, and then and then then she says, "Well, that's just like me to get involved with a cra- you're crazy. That's just like me to get involved with somebody like you." I love that part. Uh, but the uh, and then of course Vince O'Brien has a chance to come back as Sheriff Patterson for uh, for at least another. I, I do miss Dana Elkar, but uh, you know, but but he comes back. And uh, the the bottom line is, I think that it's what is really interesting about this block to me is the empathy that Barnabas develops towards Chris uh, as the werewolf. Once he finds out what's going on, 
And, and, and you really see a full maturity in terms of Barnabas, who was the, who originally, when he was introduced to us, was the mama's boy, who was, or the father, the papa's boy, who was the, uh, the selfish spoiled brat in 1795. And now he's like really, really saying, this is a guy who's gone in another way exactly what I've gone through. And I can and he kind of grow up me. after 200 years. <laughs> yeah, well, it takes a long time, but it happened. And he really goes out of his way to help Chris. And even Julia's surprised, uh, you know, because Julia's saying, well, I don't really know if I want to help Chris the way I helped you, because Julia was in love with Barnabas. But I, I really think that, the, it, it, in my view, the most we can get out of this is the development of the Barnabas character. Empathy. Empathy. Empathy to the T. And the, and the, and the extent to which, to which the Barnabas character wants to help him, puts him in the mausoleum to hide him so he doesn't go around, uh, you know, and, and it is funny, it is, it is funny that in the morning, you see the coffin is torn to shreds, but Chris's uniform, Chris's, Chris is immaculate. His, his right. sweatshirt is still on. His, his, his pants are, he's, he, he looks like he, he looks he like didn't he didn't bust out of nothing. No, 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 no. Yeah. Every other scene, his shirt is torn, ripped to shreds and everything. But this time, he's in the mausoleum by himself. And he didn't rip up his shirt or anything. I guess he must have realized that he had a, a limited fashion. Uh, I uh, time because when Elizabeth's daughter sees the werewolf for the very first time, she doesn't question that this, this angry dog is dressed in human clothing. So obviously, yeah. this is way before Paris Hilton started dressing her dogs. You know, you got to say that's quite a major. That's feat. true. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Absolutely. But she said uh, that she goes, "Oh, she goes." I saw an angry dog with manacles. An angry dog that's dressed in human clothing. <laughs> no one. Okay. We also see, and we hate Quentin right away because he tries to poison tr- Chris with strychnine, and Chris, and, and that, that is a. A nice little touch. Chris thinks the werewolf, uh, the werewolf pain is coming upon him, and he doesn't understand what the hell is happening. When in reality, he's just been poisoned with strychnine, and that's why he's got the pain. So that was, so that was cool. And of course, we see Beth, uh, the you know, and Terry Crawford gets some good mileage out of that uh, by, and all she has to do is stand over Chris and cry, uh, which is. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, it doesn't take a lot of acting at all. Uh, but I do think, I personally think there are better scenes in this block. But that is certainly one of them. And I think that for me, the empathy of Barnabas, I think, is the most is the most poignant one that we get out of it. That's what my that's my take. I was uh, going to say, like Don Briscoe came from a theater background. As many of the actors on the show were Broadway performers or came from regional theater, he's a he's very, very talented stage actor. So really, they committed to the material. They acted with passion. And so I really admire him having to do those scenes where he's in agony. Um, and I, I did feel very bad for him. And of course, his... Sister Amy, it was nice seeing that brother-sister relationship on the show. I like that. Um, I um, uh, agree that you did see Barnabas so completely understood him, having to be a you know, that vampire that he didn't want to be. He understands Chris doesn't want to be a wolf. He doesn't want to 
have to attack people. Um, there's a, actually, this is the period, and I don't know offhand what particular episode, but um, there was a particular bloody episode with the werewolf uh, attacking somebody, and uh, an affiliate station took it off because um, I think it was up in the Buffalo area. They put it on, and then letters came in of complaint, and then they took Dark Shadows off um, because they tuned in. You know, people tuned in say, Mom or Dad, that particular day, what's my kid watching? And it was a particularly uh, bloody scene yes, with the uh, werewolf. bloody scene that was. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have to sit there and say with the werewolf storyline, you get a lot of, you know, you don't actually see the werewolf attacking people, but to be honest, it is that famous thing of Texas Chainsaw Massacre where basically you don't see anyone being killed, but right. basically it cuts. So you get the werewolf going after someone and then it cuts. And then, and then of course, you know, and then it picks up, you know, the next scene sort of thing. And so your mind pretty much thinks that you've seen a lot more than what you've seen. And I was going to say... I agree of, with that. You kind of got that with the, you know, the, the vampire thing is a bit different because it's kind of not... A vampire doesn't savage his kills, but a werewolf savages his kills. And I think that, I imagine that people probably in their mind probably thought they saw a lot more than what they really did. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Again, yeah. then you had Carolyn, you had Carolyn getting attacked in the uh, mausoleum and she right. got swiped, but she got a little bloody here. But I'm trying to place that episode. They had those scars on her for a while. Yeah. Uh, which was, which was, which is, and that, of course, is the first time we really see the fight between Barnabas and the werewolf and how the silver of the cane tends to deflect him. And, and that was, that, that's, that's probably part of the best, uh, you know, because, you know, because he, he feels so much empathy for Chris, but then now the werewolf is a totally other, being and uh, uh totally evil and uh you know and barnabas uh barnabas goes out of his way to research the condition which is uh not something he usually does so i think he really took it upon himself julia had just decided well let me see what this is about and she gives him a book and he says well i've researched this already and he's telling her actually what the whole what the whole thing is and uh that goes to show you his interest and uh, and Chris, of course, is extremely grateful for Barnabas and Julia's help, and he lets him know that. And and it's a nice kind of thing because up to this point, Chris has been completely alone, and he has got to he's had to move from town to town, and uh, he could never really talk about this before. Now he's got two people that he can really, really uh, vent to. I think that's good. I also think that um, with the werewolf storyline, um, I think I think what kind of brings it kind of home sort of thing is when you get the Donna, when Donna comes to visit them and then you go, you need to get away from me, you need to get away from me. Then you get the werewolf coming at the camera sort of thing. And then it cuts, obviously a commercial break. And then you find out that Donna's been torn to pieces and she's in the woods. They tell you that. Right. So I imagine that. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, and you got to remember that television this time was all about you put the pieces together, whether it was Twilight Zone or something like that. It wasn't about showing things. It's about information that was given. It's not different today. It's different that could show you everything, sort of thing. Right. Well, back then, all they had to do is give you a few bits of information. And your mind, you know, the audience's mind at that time were able to put things together. You know, if you look at the old 30s and 40s horror films and stuff like this, you didn't see any gore. But because the information, again, your mind's putting everything together, you don't need to see it. 
And I probably imagine that was, you know, for daytime television, I mean, it's, if you think about it, you know, this woman who's quite nice, very attractive, you know, throwing herself at this attractive guy sort of thing. And the next thing you know, the next thing you find out, she's been torn to pieces by the guy that she's trying to come on to. Well, that's a very good point, Keith. And Jonathan would comment on this too, that leave it to the audience's imagination. And he particularly would recall the scene with the bat flying in and biting him on the neck, turning him into a vampire. But he said he wished it had been the power of suggestion, that he looked up, he's in horror, and they cut away. Or maybe you see a shadow. He said, but years later, of course, people laugh at the scene, which kind of hurt him because, again, he was acting his heart out. Um, but it was the the effect that really doesn't hold up today, and he wished that it had been, as you described, just give me the little tease and cut away. Um, but unfortunately, Dan Curtis wanted to try all the super affection and uh, see it all, so to speak. Well, I mean, if you look at Todd Browning's um, Dracula, for instance, basically what happens is you get the shadow of the bat coming towards <laughs> one of the characters, and all of a sudden, then Bella the Goshi pops into the scene and like flows into flows out of the shadow of the bat, which is a lot more suggestive than actually seeing a CGI version of a bat turning into a human, a human vampire sort of thing. I think it's always been, um, <clears throat> starting from the universal horror cycle, where you have the suggestion of what was going to happen versus the Christopher Lee Hammer stuff, where everything is spelled out for you. And, and, and I think part of the, part of the problem, I mean, when, when the bat attacked Jonathan as Barnabas in 1795, you actually appeared to see, if you looked very closely, uh, and you wouldn't have seen it, by the way, on the small TV sets back in the 60s, but looking at it now, you actually see uh, Jonathan holding the bat puppet to his neck in order that, in order to, you know, in order to make sure that the bat was zeroing in. And, 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 and I think that was part of what the fans laughed at. And it was kind of heartless in a way because they, because it was not realized the kind of effort that went into that kind of stuff. And, uh, but there were, as you state, I mean, now when you see this stuff where Alex Stevens is the werewolf runs towards the camera. And I mean, he's really running towards the camera. He's not running towards the victim, mm. but you, there is still enough of that suspended uh, belief, uh, the psychic distance, so to speak. And, and I think that you could see the, uh, you, you know, you, you do get that impression. Uh, and I think a lot of, and I think the werewolf fans, I think kind of latched onto that. As much as you saw, there was a lot that you didn't see. And so I think they did that more with, uh, and it could have been the direction also, because at that point, Henry Kaplan was directing. Uh, you had different directors. Penberry Jones, I have no idea who he was, and that came into the picture during this block. I didn't even realize that. Dennis Kane, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, maybe you know about these people more than I do, Mary. I, I, I didn't know about them at all. I mean, Henry Kaplan's legendary because David Selby always talks about it. But I, you know, I think that there were kind of different directors involved, and that may have been, uh, and, and I could be guessing on this, but that may have been more of a contributory factor going back to the imagined rather than the real. 
Yes, of course. So John Sedwick was a director, Leela Swift was a director, and then, as I mentioned, became a producer towards the end. Uh, this Pennberry Jones, I don't find any information about him. I have two thoughts on it. Mm-hmm. People did, when I was on shows, um, through a connection to watch the show and then be given an episode or two, uh, and they can go on and pursue their career. Um, the other thought is, is was it somebody using that name because, let's say, perhaps, you know, say it was an actor on the show and they didn't want to know, they, okay, we'll use another name. Um, again, there's really no records anywhere, um, and people like yeah. Dan were to ask. So I don't know, but yes, usually you know, soap operas will have four or five directors that rotate. It's a tremendous amount of prep time they have to do at home. Mm-hmm. They have to go over all the blocking all the actors blocking and have production meetings so it would be pretty impossible to just have one or two directors you do need a team yeah i i, I agree and uh, you know jack sullivan is another example <clears throat> when he first came on uh he, he he used the pseudonym of sean do sullivan in order so that people would not, but then later on he decided, and he was a, and he was a pretty major force for a little while, but, but you know, but, but when he first came on, he didn't want to be known that for that, for that, for whatever reason that was. So that may have also had something to, had, had something to do with it. And in fact, one of the episodes in this block is actually talked about on Amazon Prime that two directors, uh, and two writers, uh, did the episodes which were filmed in reverse order. And uh, it was the one where Amy burns uh, Chris's shirt in the, uh, in the fire. And, the, and, it, and it's interesting the way these two different directors handled it. Uh, one of them, uh, the shirt was burned partly. In the next episode, the shirt was totally burned. And then there were different clothes. Uh, Amy was wearing her, uh, Denise Nicholson says Amy was wearing her green jacket over the, over her dress. And in the next episode, she was just wearing the dress. And that is just a matter of directorial style. But, but at the back then, who would have, you know, I mean, on the small TV, who would have really caught that? It's only now that we're looking at that all these years later and we realize a different technique. And Amazon actually mentioned that uh, as part of their uh, oddity kind of segments uh, to that. So that gives you another example. I mean, I guess another thing about Dark Shadows is Dark Shadows was never meant to be seen again. It was on once and that's it. Soap operas in those days, they weren't, you know, they weren't made for repeat viewing. It wasn't repeat viewing. I mean, the only thing that would might got, I mean, by this time, I mean, 68, 69, I mean, most of your shows that you're watching on TV and prime time were even being in syndication at that time. Syndication was not a thing. I mean, if you, saw, if you missed an episode of Bewitched, you missed an episode right. of Bewitched, unless you saw the summer rerun season, which, to be honest, you know, what we're finding out with Bewitched when we started undertaking that is I thought they did 20 to 22 episodes per year, and we we're realizing they're doing, I did 38 to 40 episodes per year. So even, well, they weren't even making room well, for the, the summer rerun season. <laughs> so. Well, also because the thing is, tape was expensive, so they would tape over it. If you want to go watch an episode of As Will Turns from 1967, it doesn't exist. They're all taped over. The shows really only started saving them in the very late 70s 
Dan Curtis had this incredible foresight yep. to save his French tapes in cold storage. Yep. There was a really, really, he was a very smart businessman. And the show very quickly was syndicated. I mean, overseas, internationally, it was seen in South America and other countries in the, in the early 70s. So he was right on top of how can I make money off these shows that I have saved. Uh, very, very astute in that way. He was very smart that way. That was a great move on his part, and it's because of that that we can all look at these episodes today. Now, yeah. I do think that we need to discuss some script discrepancies of the werewolf storyline. I don't know whose idea to put a werewolf in a hotel, a running hotel, and thinking that none of the guys <laughs> are the screaming and the agonizing screams coming from the locker room. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think I noticed that there was a werewolf in my hotel. You know, the, you know, the other thing is when he how is he gonna how does he how does he get out of that hotel room? What does he do? Go down to the lobby and uh, announce himself and stuff how like that. How do they not hear Joe shoot him? <laughs> Gunfire. I mean I is like whose idea was this? I'm sure you can like pick you know, you could do like a warehouse scene or something like that somewhere, lock him up in like a little cell, you know, a little cellar somewhere. But yeah, it just got, and it's like, and what kind of hotel room has a bed with bars on the window? It was the attic. It was just, I don't know. You, there's some, there's some certain areas here in, in like in South Dallas, there's bars on every window. So. Well, it just, depends it just on my neighborhood, Conrad, I guess. But what, I mean, Conrad and Bay came it was in the previous one that we covered. But when Conrad and Bay goes, "Oh, we don't rent this room out very often," you're thinking, "Yeah, I wonder why there's bars on the window." <laughs> well, but they took him out of that soon enough and put him into the cottage, and I think that was very. Although, uh, and, and and of course, now after a million years, you hear Matthew Morgan's name. Everybody's talking about that was Matthew Morgan's cottage, and uh, if you didn't watch the show back then, you don't remember who Matthew Morgan. Yeah. Morgan, yeah. uh, from the first year uh, and actually Amazon has a closed caption era where uh, Briscoe is talking and you see the closed caption Matthew says and I'm like wow you know I mean like they didn't even realize the difference somebody uh, else who had to but- kill Victoria of course goes back to budget they had a super limited budget so yeah. what do you do you take that set and recycle it but right. you probably need to explain to the audience who does know and recognize it. Well, let's just say, okay, it was Matthews and now he's living here. But they really constantly had to watch what they were spending, and a new set would cost extra money. Exactly. That must no have question. killed them when they had that set Anyone from hell. Has stayed in that cottage? Has anything ever good happened to them? No, nothing good Laura? happened in that cottage. <laughs> no. <laughs> Matthew Morgan, no. Let Laura um, Collins, and then you know. I mean, being a werewolf, I think we can assume that maybe this is not going to be a, a good life either. But everyone that stayed in that cottage is that cottage just brings bad luck to whoever stays in it, doesn't it? Right, it does. It does. Yeah, yeah. Eighteen forty, even that's when Stokes is killed in that cottage. When we have Carrie, absolutely, that- absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Not a good place to stay. It's just like. I don't know. I think if I showed up at Collinsman, they go, oh, you can live in the car. They go, can I just stay in the main house? Yeah. <laughs> no, you got so much room cottage. here. <laughs> give me a wing. Like, give me a wing. I'm sure I get my vacuum cleaner out and dust the wet. <laughs> He's the wing that no one's staying in. The west wing. Does that mean they have a south wing and a north wing? 
Uh-oh. have an east wing and a west wing, but they never talk about the north and the south. That's yeah, uh, maybe that that's last the next thing. You might have gotten to the north and south. Dark Shadows, Scene 3. Amy and David explore the West Wing. They hold a seance to contact Quentin Collins. The spirit of Magda speaks through Carolyn during another seance. Amy tells David and Quentin is angry. Roger discovers David and Amy are missing. David hears Quentin's music and searches for him. David and Amy find a skeleton thinking it is Quentin. The ghosts of Quentin and Beth Chavez apparently appear to David and Amy. Professor Stoke brings Janet Finley, a medium, to find the spirit possessing Collinwood. David and Amy lock Miss Finley in the secret passage. Miss Finley hears the old disconnected telephone ring. Barnabas decides that David and Amy should go on a trip to Boston with him and Maggie. David sneaks into the West Wing where Maggie follows him. Maggie punishes David and he vows to get even. Okay, now we're to scene three. And we'll start with you, Mary. What are your thoughts of scene three? Well, first, I would just like to say that the writers did do a wonderful job of connecting the story. So, werewolf, what does this have to do with the ghost coming into Collinwood and scaring Amy and David? Well, they beautifully connect it that this is the ancestor. Um, So I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed the remake of Turn of the Screw. I mean, basically, that's what it is, is the children being possessed by a ghost. Right. I thought it was very, very interesting. The children, of course, the young actors were very talented and did a terrific job. And there were just all kinds of little twists and turns in trying to figure it out. Uh, and, you know, introducing, oh, there's a skeleton. Was that Quentin or is that someone Quentin killed? And then the character of Beth. Um, and then how she's trying to communicate to, to save them when she can't talk. Um, but I, yeah, I, really, I really enjoyed the turn of the screw part of the store of the series. I like to turn the screw. I think that um I think turning the screw is a difficult story anyway because it's all about I mean if you look at the original turn of the screw basically it's about awakening sexuality about this you know you have this groundskeeper and the governess who basically have this lured sexual um storyline that goes on late she commits suicide, he dies, and then apparently they're, they go in and start sexualizing the children, and then you got this, um, you know, um, virginal governess who comes in, and all of a sudden she becomes sexually awakened, and that's pretty much your turn of the street storyline. And to be able to adapt this into a daytime soap opera and get rid and but be able to adapt, I think they do quite a good job, actually, considering that, you know, but, you know, I think where it kind of does go a little bit astray is bringing Maggie into the home sort of thing, because yeah, I think if Victoria was, if Victoria's character was still around doing the governess, and then David does the switch um, and taking control of a situation, you right. probably would feel a bit more probably a bit more natural, where Maggie's kind of like a fish out of water in this household at the same time that when David switches... There, there's not really a connection between these two characters yet. And it probably would have been nice if Maggie was instigated more into the household before David gets gets possessed by Quentin a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I think everything else works fine. I mean, Amy, um, Denise Nickerson as Amy and David, they work so well together. They do. Denise Nickerson, yeah. what, she is such a, a great actress. 
I mean, there were several times where I think she outshined several of the other characters in in these sections. And the one thing, though, about this is, I mean, I I don't even think we got the answer out of David Selby when we interviewed him. But um, why was Quentin quiet? for so long the two months all you do is see i mean is that because of the turn of the screw storyline because they didn't really say much either mm-hmm. in the governor i think that was probably it they don't speak do they in the innocence and uh, they don't speak at all right in the innocence yeah true they don't i was just wondering because it takes so long guess- to get this going but i just thought it was creepy it was just really the the acting that was taking well. place with their eyes well, they do um, look creepy. Very- they they got those villainous looking ghosts, you know. They they're scary looking, and here you got two small children. So yeah, it's kind of alarming, actually. I think it's a tribute, really, to to Selby, because of course this makeup that they had this in the beginning, he had this almost cadaverous makeup on, yeah, uh, which uh, you know, which made him look a little long in the tooth, and uh, but I, I think you know that's. That scowl of his rivals the scowl of Jim Storm two years or three years later as Gerard, which we'll get to eventually. And I think that's kind of interesting that they introduce both ghosts in the same kind of way with the evil silence and the evil scowl. Uh, but, but, but certainly I, I think that there's, there's good and bad to this. Uh, and I'll talk about the good first. And this is somebody that really should have been on a lot longer, in my opinion. Kavada Humphrey as Janet Findlay, the medium, who had three days yeah. and she was killed off. Uh, I liked know. her. I liked everybody, I think, liked her. I think most of the fans talked about the fact that they really felt that she would have been a very interesting addition to she the cast. Been. Yeah, I agree with yeah, that. Because she was the medium. She handled her parts so well. It was, it was. Except it was, for when she tripped in the attic in the West Wing. Well, <laughs> you mean down the staircase? <laughs> no, or whatever. Her? She was, she tripped over something in that room where Quentin was going into it before. Oh, yeah, started. yeah. I know what you're talking about. I don't know why that. I just, I, I've seen it twice now. I had to back it up a couple times. Like, oh, man, she really did trip. It was an accident. But I mean, give her a lot of credit. I mean, I think she did a great, I think she did a great job. It was a stunt person that, you know, when she finally fell down the stairs. Right. Uh, and that was a stunt person, but. And I think she was, she was a kind of needed, uh, she was a kind of needed boost to essentially what I felt was a very long, drawn out and bored. And, and I was bored actually for the first time. And, and, and I don't think you get this when you're originally watching the show on the small set and you just can't wait to see what happens next. But when you know uh, what's going to happen. Exactly. But now I'm mean, looking at this and I'm saying, my God, when I can, when I compare it to some of the other plots that went really fast and, and, and cohesive and zip. And all this is, is David and are you going to play the game today? No, I don't want to play the game. And then David, one, one thing, it brought the monster out of David again. What the game is. What? Does anyone understand what the game is? Go, no, oh, I don't. Mary, do you know, they, know what the game, game is? The, the game, the game. <laughs> oh, Mary. Yeah, I was right. going to ask I mean, I just, Go ahead, Mary. But the game was that uh, David becomes the Quentin-like, and he mm-hmm. is doing evil, and and Amy, too, is yeah. being the best character. That's it, yeah. They're acting. They're yeah. children. Oh, okay. they're so they technically possessed? 
Yeah, technically, right? yes. But it, but they no, fight it. They fight it. I don't. I think there's also times they might not even, you know, once they're possessed, I mean, they're, they're not doing things they would ordinarily do. And then they realize, wait a minute, what did I do? And how could that be me? Um, mm-hmm. And then we have to blame Quentin and Beth. Uh, we do have Amy feeling I, bad about Carolyn. She wants to protect Carolyn. Well, well, of course, Amy already has the situation with her brother, of course, the werewolf right. and you know and that's the other thing she, she's very upset when she realizes that quentin's trying to kill her brother and uh with the strychnine thing uh and uh you know and and, and but but and david is going back and forth but you do see a little of the of the monster that david was in the first year that kind of comes back into this God, and he was a little turd I haven't seen it for awful. I mean, trying to kill his father. (laughs) Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, uh, he. What's interesting is we get David going back, but doing it in a more mature way, though. It's that's quite interesting because if you compare evil David now or Quentin possessed David compared to David when the show first started, David was a brat. This one, it's a more controlled brat. He's calculating now. He's calculating, and it's, it's quite nice to be see to see the actor being able to differentiate the two different ways. Some actors probably would just revert it back to what they did at the very beginning. Of- I think David Hennessy, I agree. I think David Hennessy handled this very well. But you really want and you really want to kick David in the teeth when he when he takes Amy and puts her in a backbreaker. And uh <laughs> you know, and I mean it's it's pretty obvious that she's this small little thing and she really doesn't have the wherewithal to physically defend herself and he's really bullying her uh at that particular point and of course he's kind of possessed as well but you do get that you but i did get that that reminder of what david was two years ago and he had matured up to this point but maybe quentin ruined it uh, ruined all of it when he possessed him and he kind of regressed well, I don't think Quentin has good intentions at this point in the story. So, what good intentions can you? I mean, have? the only problem I have, I guess, with this, I guess the only problem I would have with this storyline so far that it looks like there's that you do have the feeling that scriptwriters are trying to find their footing and how this is all going to work out. So, there's a bit of a meandering that's going on a little bit. So, as you said, Dark Shadows does do this quite a bit, actually, where you have something that's either moving very, very quickly or very, very slowly. And this is one of the storylines that are kind of meandering as they're finding their footing. But saying that, when they cast David Selby as the part of Quentin at this moment in time, I, I got different views on Quentin later on when we get to those episodes. But at right. this point in time, to have an actor be able to just stand there, not say a word, and being able to give the audience a shiver pique your interest scare you but you want to know more without saying a single word but by just by raising an eyebrow or just giving a little bit of a look and the thing is what and considering that david selby comes from a stage background Mm -hmm. um it's quite you know because he's saying this is one of his first television roles to be able to do everything very very small for the screen, because normally what you'll do is get a stage actor and the first time in front of the camera, everything's a little bit too large, larger than life. But to be able to do that very, very subtly, I mean, my hats go off to him because you're just kind of going, I mean, I still, I'm at that point where I want to know more about Quentin. I need to know more about Quentin. What in the hell, where, where the hell is Quentin? Where's the storyline about Quentin? 
And that has piqued my interest. Do you also think that there's too much time being spent at Eagle Hill Cemetery? Is that like the the place where everybody, is that the go-to place? It's like anything or anybody who's, it's like it's always They always come back to it. They always come back to it. One of the things I wanted to just comment um, following up on Tom Back in the day, again, Soap Opera 68, 69, if you were to watch an episode of As World Turns, Guiding Light, mm-hmm. the story moved slowly. They didn't move fast. So right. I did not find the story slow. I was really, every episode, what's going to happen today? But, all right, if you watch it now, things do seem slower mm-hmm. because shows yeah. we watch move incredibly fast. That's a good um, point. Daytime- yeah. But you didn't, ex- you didn't always expect that with Dark Shadows because there were certain, I mean, we've discussed this before, there were certain plots in Dark Shadows, like the, the first 1795 block, had moved very, very quickly. And, uh, you know, and, and there was just so much that happened and you had to keep up. And you kind of got, and you kind of got used to, uh, and then of course the Nicholas Blair thing and the Angelina the Vampire. It was a very, very, very fast. And then all of a sudden to, to, to follow that with something that's so slow. And the first year of Dark Shadows was very slow as well. And it's probably, uh, you I'll know. I picture Laura Collins and Laura Collins happened and then it went boof and then, then it went slow right. again. And, and we will see fun. that later uh, because Laura's going to come back, everybody. We're not going to say when. But, you know, and I also think, Keith, I think that in addition to Selby's uh, and, and Mary, in addition to Selby's uh, portrayal, uh, you had Quentin's theme. And that caught uh, and that really captivated everybody. Uh, it was a great tune. It was uh, uh, it was very different because it was on the gramophone, and uh, and of course it went on to become one of the top ten uh, in 1968, I believe it was, and uh, and, and and I think that the combination of uh, Selby's portrayal and Quentin's theme going with it, that really captivated people. And that kind of made up, you couldn't wait to see Quentin. Quentin doesn't come on that many times in this, in this block, maybe three times at most. And, but, but whenever you hear Quentin's theme, I mean, that really, you know, that, that's really a, uh, you want to hear that. You want to hear that. And I liked it. And uh, that was my take. Yeah, I mean, quite yeah. interesting. Uh, it's quite nice not to have to hear Joe's at the music box anymore because by that, <laughs> and you do hear that a little bit, but not too much, uh, yeah. you know. And even and even Barnabas is sick and tired of it, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. when uh, when it's found in Vicky's old, you know, Vicky's things, and and and, and for the first time, Barnabas don't doesn't even want to hear about it. Doesn't even want to hear it anymore because he's kind of kind of wants to forget about he wants he kind of wants to forget about everything. So yeah, it's 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 good that now and remember why Selby came on, uh, because Jonathan and Mary, you can speak more to this, but Jonathan was you know was had a lot to do with this, and and he was he was overwhelmed, and he wanted somebody to he wanted somebody to to take a little bit of attention off of it. What what the, what's your take on that, Mary? Basically, as Barnabas, Jonathan was working four and five times a week. And as he has often said, he used the expression slow study, but he actually had dyslexia. So he spent hours and hours every night 
trying to get his lines into his head. It was a tremendous on his part. So he went to Dan and said, Dan, please, you need to get another strong lead here so that I can work less days. Um, and I believe the first attempt was uh, Adam, uh, because that, that character could have become very central. Uh, it didn't turn out that way. But then the next one, Quentin, was hugely successful. Fairly okay. solid actor, as you said, theater background, had an intensity that drew you in. So he became that secondary lead, although, of course, uh, David always says, but Jonathan was really Dark Shadows. Um, right. And, of course, Quentin's character, often in other incarnations, too, was a bit of a cad. So not necessarily the character that you empathize with in the way you empathize with Barnabas. But, yes, in fact, it was his uh, sort of desperate plea to Dan, please bring on another character that did have uh, the writers created Quentin. Well, before we move to scene four, I think we need to address Maggie coming in as governess. Yeah. Now, I think that they missed a little bit of a beat here because they actually put Maggie in Victoria's old room. Yeah. And wouldn't it be nice if she had like a couple of Sans paintings up in the room just to make it feel like, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, at least a lot of, inf- there's a lot of questionings going on. It's like, well, first of all, you know, how qualified is she to be exactly governess and be able to be the homeschool teacher? But Liz was very desperate at this point, though, to get somebody she trusted in there. I think that might have something to do with it. It might be, but another thing, I mean, I understand, I understand like the mechanics of uh, daytime. So to bring a character because that's basically you can get rid of the, it brings Maggie, who's still a part, who's. Maggie's character has always been a bit hard to bring into storyline sort of thing because she is not base at the house sort of thing. Right. She goes away and, and to be able to bring her into storylines and make it, it's kind of hard to bring her, keep her, keep her invested into storylines and remember that she's there. So that makes sense. But it does kind of wonder like, well, what does she do with her old house? <laughs> I think she just get out of the street. She put it up for rent. <laughs> leave that behind and Though she is looking fantastic, I love her wardrobe. Her wardrobe is looking fantastic. Yeah, she's looking pretty cute. There, there has always been this uh, this juxtaposition between the Vicky and Maggie characters, and in in, in point of fact, uh, uh, they went ahead. Uh, well, also Vicky and Josette kind of thing. Uh, but I think that during the original run, uh, once Vicky left. And Joe basically left the show uh, as Joe as Joe Haskell. Uh, then what's Maggie going to do? Uh, and, and, and I think so. It was. It looked like it was kind of natural that Vicky should take on that. That Maggie should take on that role. And to be fair, uh, it was discussed actually on the show that somebody said to Liz, "Why are you going to hire Maggie? She's got no governess experience." And Liz said, well, I still think she's going to do a good job. So Liz was going on her gut feeling. And considering that 
Liz had just been woken up from the dead, uh, I, you know, I think that there was, uh, <laughs> there, you know, it was, it was, it, that was even, that was even more of a reason, you know, the, let's just get things familiar. Let's get things in order. And she trusted Maggie and Maggie was well known to the family. So, well, I do, I do find it really that Barnabas, Barnabas and Julia are okay with that though. Like they're not afraid that no, no um, hypnotic memory loss is going to come back to the fore. That's good. Yes, I know. Let's just totally forget about the abuse of Maggie in the early good old days, you know? Oh, no, no, of course. You know, I mean, guys. Well, obviously, that Christmas ornament of Julia works. This one's going to stay. <laughs> well, I my comment on this is that I believe the writers knew they would want to have actress Laura Parker back. And what better way to keep the woman who played Josette right. on the camp so that when the whoever Angelique was going to incarnate into, whenever she came back, you've got the great triangle again. Right. Um, there's Barnabas, Josette, and Angelique all relived again in a different century. So I want to sort of say to Dan and the writers, I'd like to give them credit that this casting was an intentional way to get things set up for the future. Good point. And it keeps Maggie, and, uh, and does keep Maggie involved in the storylines as well. Right. She just got Lisa and hanging right. off the side somewhere. She become a well, she like the quintessential girl next door, or was it Victoria, or both of them the girl next door? Or is Maggie you know, becoming the girl felt, next door? I always felt more empathy and a kinship to Maggie than I did Victoria for some reason. Well, she was tortured, right, for a long time. <laughs> yeah, true. But she's always tuned in, right? But, but, but well, Maggie was kidnapped more, too. Vicky was kidnapped at least three, four times. Yeah, but Maggie has a more Maggie has a more interesting backstory that kind of kind of paints a story. I mean, she's got the alcoholic dad. She's got the mother who ran off, or you know, sort sort of thing. She's you know, she's got a job, sort of thing. So she's kind of like. You know, and and then and you also find that a lot more interesting thing, like when she's dating Joe, and then, and then she had that conversation with Joe about shipping and all this other stuff. And you realize that there's a lot more going on in Maggie. And then even and even when she's a victim, when Maggie's a victim, she's always trying to find a way out of being the victim as well. Where Victoria was always kind of a victim, and then she always had to have someone come and rescue her. Where Maggie never, no one's ever rescued Maggie ever once. Maggie's always rescued herself. <laughs> right, right. You know? And that which and where Victoria's always had, whether it was a ghost or something like that, rescue her. Maggie's never been Maggie's always rescued herself. Maggie's always been self reliant where Victoria's self reliant. But she's kinda of, but she's kind of the reluctant self reliant person because even though Victoria's self reliant, reluctantly there's always someone there to help her. Where Maggie's kinda of like just has to get on with it herself, sort of thing. So well, remember Vicky in the beginning also, uh at the beginning of the show, we've discussed this a few times, was really a, a strong character. But as the show progressed, they watered her down and they gave her I don't I don't understand what's wrong and and, and so forth. Uh Maggie uh, in the from the beginning was that in fact they changed the personality she was that uh brassy uh coffee shop waitress who With called Vicky hair. a jerk that's right called Vicky a jerk and uh you know and then 
of course, mysteriously, the blonde wig came off and uh, they softened Maggie. But but Maggie still retained a little bit of that hard-nosed stuff. And you can see that actually in this block when she's she's just had it with David because he's acting out and he's a, he's, he's, he's a real... He's I would have dropped him off on the highway somewhere right now, but that's, that's me. <laughs> but, but Maggie just says, I'm not going to take this. I know what you're doing. And David tries all... And she goes, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. I know what you do before you do it. And David goes, this is David. And she really gave David a run for his money. And that's the kind of tough core that we haven't seen in Maggie for a long, long, long time. Uh, but this comes out when Maggie realizes that uh, David and uh, David's trying to manipulate her. And uh, so, so there it is. And maybe this is what Vicky had in the beginning, but Catherine Lee Scott is able to kind of really uh, do a different, do a different tough. Uh, and she comes out as a, be- she comes out as a much better governor. Somebody's had no experience. She's not bad when it comes to that kind of thing as a governess. What happened to Roger? Where did Roger go? Went to yeah. London. He went to London. Oh, that's uh, right. That's right. Okay. The queen. I, <laughs> it's not like they have cell phones. It's like, well, Liz died. You need to come home. It's kind of like he was there. Next thing you know, that Barnabas is in charge of like taking the kids. Yeah, back. I know. Barnabas is like running everything now. Keith, don't be surprised. You might get a knock on the door. Hello, Keith. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, and it was up to, yeah, and Barnabas kind of becomes a parent for the first time, and it's kind of uncomfortable. I don't know, I just thought it was kind of uncomfortable to see him uh, like He's that. just a kind of take-charge char- kind of guy right now. He's just trying to protect his family at this point, you know? Well, it's funny that well, Carolyn I- didn't do that, because Carolyn was doing that for a while in the first year. But you're, but, 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 but Tom, I always liked the relationship with his little sister, Sarah. So yes. Barnabas always oh, saw that, that love in his heart for his sister. Yes. So I thought he was taking that kind of older brother role with these children. And clearly, yes, he's concerned about what's happening at Collinwood. These strange things are happening and we need to protect the children. It's so um, I actually. It's a good, it's a good point. And. I think especially with Amy, you know, they had that little backstory that Barnabas and Amy knew each other in Wincliffe. You know, Amy was at Wincliffe for a little while, you know, after Tom died and Julia was taken care. And then Barnabas was there after uh, Julia got him over there from, you know, got him away from Angelique. So the kind of intimation is, is that he and Amy bonded while they were at Wincliffe. And that continues when they run into each other at Collinwood. And you can really, the, the writers were smart in that I think they had a lot of these heart-to-hearts between Barnabas and Amy in the drawing room. And uh, you saw this kind of closeness, and you didn't see the same kind of thing between him and David. But he was, but he was very, uh, he, and, and, and yeah, there may have been, there may, although that never was really spoken, but that's a good point. There may have been some kind of transfer over from what he had for Sarah onto Amy, uh, who actually was Sarah's age. And, you know, there's a little bit of a physical resemblance and so forth. So who knows? You know, that, that's definitely there. I quite like the domestication of, Barnabas. Um, uh-huh. I'm going to say that out of all the characters that we're seeing at the moment, if you're looking at from, 
from now into this point forward. Barnabas's character um, is probably the most um, person who's gone through a lot of changes, and he's yep. actually, you know, he's not he's not the person that he was when he first entered the show. And, and yep. it's quite not the char- they're carrying his character is always changing, and you know, quite. And it would have been very easy to resort him back to what he was, sort of thing. But I like that they're able to keep moving him forward, his character forward. And I quite liked it. I said before, I, I really liked the domestication of Barnabas. That's what I'm going to call it. The domestication of Barnabas. <laughs> domestication of Barnabas. Yeah, he is. I, I, that's kind of like, well, it's almost like somebody, I don't know, don't, don't totally domesticate Barnabas because I like the wild part of him too. Well, we're going into the Barnabas Sherlock. Sherlock Watson, Park, Sherlock Barnabas, Sherlock Barnabas, uh, Barnabas is kind of like solving mysteries with his, you know, Watson Julia at the time. So we're kind of, yeah. kind of got Barnabas at that point. But to be honest, I mean, you know, he was he was a vampire to be feared, and he's tortured, and that torture's gone. He's no longer the vampire. So basically, I mean, what do you do with a character? He's got to grow. So yeah. and, and you know, I think unless, you know, I mean, you could get lazy and go make okay, let's go back to the vampire storyline again. Here we go. Well, I think it's interesting because, you know, here he is with the domesticated Barnabas, as you say, and then, and of course, we're going to talk about this in in this block when they have the reprise of 1796, and he's already, he's thrust back into that vampire role, and he, and he, and he, and he feels the bloodlust, and he's, and he's very upset about it, and he and he says, "Oh, I remember this now." Uh, da, 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 da. And uh, he's got to go, and so he really does want to get back to the present uh, after he's done what he's going to do. And we'll, and we'll talk about that when it happens. But I think it's a very interesting contrast, and it's right in this block. Let me see it. Dark Shadows, Scene Four. Cassandra returns to tell Elizabeth that she will be buried alive. Elizabeth is thought to be dead. Elizabeth lies paralyzed in her coffin. Carolyn hears her mother's voice warning her. This brings us to season four. So what are your thoughts about this, Tom? Okay, so scene four. Okay, buried alive. So here, once they finally, they, she finally dies through Cassandra. Uh, and, and they finally remember to have Lara Parker dressed as Cassandra, whereas in the last block, when she came to listen to Dream, she was dressed as Angelique. So the writers finally woke up, and here Cassandra appears to her, and uh, now I'm going to touch you, and now my curse is going to come. And, and for the rest of the scene, unfortunately, you know, well, of course, it's, you know, once... Once Liz is buried and so forth, uh, Joan Bennett runs off to Cannes for a few weeks, takes a vacation. And uh, then when she comes back, it's, my God, the lighting that they had on Joan Bennett, it, she looked like ultraviolet, she looked like she was getting ultraviolet treatment in the suntan. Uh, you I know, thought that too, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, you know, I mean, all you got to do is put those little things over, those little white goggles over her eyes uh but i i think that that really was a ripoff and i talked about it before of the alfred hitchcock episode with young cotton if you remember keith uh with where young cotton played the guy who was in an accident and uh he was 
and, and he and everybody thought he was dead, but he really was alive. And in that episode, they finally he was he was starting to cry, and they caught a tear. You know, well, I mean, it's it's a complete rip off because uh, you hear Joan Bennett's voiceover trying to warn Carolyn, and I wish I could get to her. It's very interesting that for the first time we see this kind of psychic manifestation of the Liz character uh, while she's in this kind of catatonic state where she's actually uh, where Carolyn has some sense of her mother's voice, but doesn't understand it. And, uh, and finally, uh, and finally when the werewolf is going to attack Carolyn uh, and we mustn't, by the way, we mustn't forget the pentagram. Uh, They start using the pentagram Pentagram, all over the place. Yeah, the inverted Who was pentagram. was the first one that got the pentagram? Was it the psychic or? No. Um, Joe? Joe? Oh, yeah, you're right. Who? Joe gets Joe. the pentagram. Joe, yes, that's right. That's right. Pentagram, and I think Carolyn gets the red pentagram. Carolyn got it. And, uh, and actually, and it's interesting that Amy could see the pentagram, too. That was a nice touch. Is uh, this a thing that runs in their family or was yeah. every district? Is the... The, the well, werewolf disease thing is this a family thing? So she could probably turn into a werewolf. Probably we're, we're gonna we're gonna see this much later, but it's only the part of the curse is that only the male descendants can turn into uh, werewolf. Uh, if you know, I'm, I'm gonna be a werewolf. Yeah. So well, what can I tell you, Vicky? You'd be a good werewolf. You'd be a good vampire. My God, Vicky, you're so talented. Um, but uh, but I think that the you know in this in this kind of I mean, it, it, it was, it was interesting because there was an interesting juxtaposition because this is really the first time that Barnabas uses his cane to fend off the werewolf. And Carolyn's silver bracelet is something that the werewolf is scared of. Uh, although it kind of looked like tin to me when you, when you kind of looked at it. But, uh, but it was, it was, it was fun. I've always enjoyed those. Barnabas werewolf scenes where he fights him off with the cane. Uh, it's, 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 and it's a silver wolf's head cane. Uh, so that, that has its own kind of symbolism. The wolf head is right. actually fighting, uh, fighting him off. And they finally use it to, they finally, Liz wakes up. And I do think it's very effective because Julia, using her usual medical talent, says Liz is dead as a doornail and she's in the conference she's in the mausoleum and they finally accept and then all of a sudden the next thing you know uh joan bennett walks onto the scene and and that's nice that that i think is nice because i mean it was well acted you really got the impression well that's it liz is dead for the final time and well how far did they put that button away from her finger i mean come on not far enough She goes, I just got to reach the button. I just got to reach the button. It's just like, man. Hey, wasn't Liz smart that she insisted on having the uh, on having the mausoleum made that way with the button yeah, and, the, yeah. and all that? Uh, Roger had a fit, and he yeah. and and he and he and he and he tore apart the model yep. of the mausoleum and everything. But the Liz stood her ground. Module. <laughs> if Roger had had his way, that would have been it for poor Liz. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, and, and so it's a good thing that he was in London when all this happened. Um, but I think that, uh, I, you know, I mean, it was good to see Joan Bennett finally back. And I kind of realized I missed her. 
you know, uh, and Carolyn, of course, missed the hell out of her. Uh, it was very, very poignant to see the love that the mother-daughter relationship, they really, really brought that out at the end. Because in the beginning, they were always having arguments, Liz and Carolyn, if you remember. But down deep, there was a very deep affection. Well, she's kind of grown up from being the, the problem teenage person to, you know, the lady of the house. So she's definitely had an evolution. I am just glad the storyline's over with. Okay. <laughs> that too. <laughs> I didn't want to do that. I, I know that we got a segment coming up um, later on here um, very quickly. But yeah, I'm just glad it's over with. The only problem I'm finding at the moment, and this is but my problem with Dark Shadows, you know, I love Barnabas and Julian and all the other new characters and stuff like this. But whenever I see Elizabeth or whenever I see Roger, I feel a longing and a miss them not being integral parts of any yeah of especially roger oh my god he was like my, see that my favorite characters for like ever but, but i mean they've been i mean elizabeth's been missing for a good few months yeah yep. well, i know she's prominent and talked about death and then she disappeared for like 12 episodes to come in and go oh death 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 disappear for 12 i mean she did come alive a little bit more when uh, amy entered the household a little right bit. i think she, she goes yeah she had her, her moment of clarity you know you know, she forget about her obsession with death and like got excited about Victoria getting married, but right, they're very far between. And Roger's kind of like he's like he's, he's like a workaholic. He's never home. Yeah, it's kind of like. Would you want to stay in that house with all those issues constantly? I'd be running to London too. Unfortunately, I mean, Dark Shadows is a huge machine with a lot of dis- different gears and pieces going on at the same time. Yeah, yeah. and unfortunately is that you're not totally aware until they do pop up every once in a while that you realize that these pieces are actually being forgotten about some, a lot of times. Yep. And it's kind of a shame because, you know, and then, and then so when you do see them, when you see Roger, when you see Elizabeth, because they're, the, they're the two main characters that kind of been pushed to the side. Uh, Mrs. Johnson from, uh, on occasion as well. And then when you see them, it's like, Oh, I really missed them. I want to see more of them, but then they're gone after a scene. And then you Mrs. Don't... Johnson get a new wig. No, she's still wearing Norma Bates' mom. It's week. one of them anyway. And uh, I did enjoy the comic relief that Clarice Blackburn afforded, by the way. And we mustn't forget that. I think the ring is block. And when she says, when she, when she, she comes, she comes home with bags from shopping and says, and it was a great line. I, 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 I'd like to meet the guy who invented supermarkets so I could wring his neck. You know, I mean, I thought that that was, I, I just thought, I, I just thought that they did some real good stuff. And, and, and Clara's Blackburn is also, is also very good. But Keith, in responding to your thing about Liz and Roger, I think it goes beyond that. I think it goes to Joan Bennett and Louis Edmonds and the way they were able to act with each other in their acting interplay. Because if you, you remember Joshua and Naomi, that was also great. And right. a different kind of relationship, husband and wife. And then yeah. later on, uh, and, that, and of course, brother, sister. And then later on, uh, when we get into 1897, I don't want to get into that too much. You're going to go into Judith and Edward. And those two, brother and sister, have a great, have a very, very interesting. So I, re- I think it goes beyond the dynamic of the characters. It was what they were able to do with it as actors. I, and that's my. Yeah, opinion. it's just that we 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 haven't had a lot of them for the last. There's been quite a few months that we haven't had a lot of them, and this I have to say, I am missing them a little bit. Yeah, me mm-hmm, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Well, one thing I just want to say again, I guess, as a producer who works in daytime soaps, there are times actors ask for their two-week vacation, they get an opportunity to do a play, and certainly you know, Joan and Louis, who are well-established original players, they would try to accommodate. And I worked on soaps where, okay, the actor playing the doctor wants two weeks off, we'll just send him on a medical conference. I applaud that Dark Shadows, when probably faced with these situations, the writers come up with interesting ideas. Well, let's go you know, have her uh, have a phobia about her own death. I mean, so they resorted to really interesting, suitable for Dark Shadows storylines, not just let's just uh, disappear them. Um, and, of course, with Jonathan wanting to do a play and gone for four weeks, they put a stake through his heart, and everyone thought, my gosh, Barnabas yeah. is dead. And yeah. then, you know, no, four weeks later he comes back, and oh, it was a doppelganger, and he's fine. Um, right. So we never really would know, again, all these years later, but I'm sure there were times that there were requests from, say, Joan, of I, I want this time off, whether it was to travel to see her family to do something else. Um, because, again, m- many of these actors were of, of the stage. Uh, Louis had done Broadway. Um, uh, so that's possibility too of why they don't see, we don't see them for a while, um, and then also yes we they always had four or five actors in one episode they kept right. it very tight not so right. many actors in an episode and unless they were central at that moment well, okay well let's not have them today uh, well so, every time Vicky a- was hung every time Vicky was hung they had eleven actors but and and so that was the big the big scene where everybody could uh, where all the extras. Including yeah. David Grow, by the way, who later came on to later was uh, Joe and Rhoda uh, was in that was in the hanging scenes. But other than that, yeah, you're right, Mary. I mean, they would be four or five, maybe six at most. But you know, I also think is is that uh, the way it's coming across, you know, what's going on behind the scenes or stuff like that, and you know, the way it comes across is almost like the new bloods pushing out the old blood. That's what it kind of, that, that's that right. kind of, yep, uh, yep. Dark Shadows, Scene 5. Mrs. Johnson believes Victoria wants to return from the past. An image of Victoria hanging appears in a photograph David takes of Barnabas and Carolyn. Barnabas makes plan to travel back in time to prevent Victoria being hanged. Barnabas summons Peter Bradford and goes back to 1796. In 1796, Barnabas tells Ben Stokes that he plans on changing history. Barnabas forces Nathan to sign a confession. Angelique promises to save Victoria and later vows never to release Victoria from her spell. Natalie, Dupree, and Nathan prepare to destroy Barnabas. Barnabas pleads with Ben to chain him inside the coffin. In 1969, Willie releases Barnabas from his chain coffin. This brings us to scene five. Um, what about Mary? What are your thoughts of scene five? 1796, and he wants to change history. Right. Um, unfortunately, change very much in terms of history. But um, I think it's also that moment where the um, Angelique again, and that's you know again where ooh uh, the dynamic of Barnabas and Angelique, um, which was always fun to see that. Um, and I loved, of course, Thayer David, you know, that, that Barnabas yep. has one of the things, 
uh, with Ben uh, because I always liked that relationship that he had been, you know, somebody for this indentured servant, but he taught him to read. And uh, he has quite a deep friendship with Ben. And so it was great to see the Ben Barnabas together again and pleading with his friend to help him and chain him in the coffin. And, um, so I enjoyed that um, so that he could get back to the present. I need to get back in that coffin. <laughs> right. I, I think that of all the scenes we've discussed so far, the 1796 reprise in my mind was the best because it once again came, it once again came, the action is happening fast and furious again. But the difference is, is that Barnabas's intent now is to change history to try and save Vicky from hanging and in order. And they, they must have had an easy day to basically uh, do the do a part of the original 1795 show in one episode to bring the kind of fans to remind the fans of what had happened essentially that last night. And uh, Jonathan did the voiceover narration in terms of what happened. Wow. And and after and after they went and after they went back. Uh, now Ben is taking over the role of Louis Edmonds, uh, because the, uh, the intent is to, uh, is to get Roger to go to Bangor and, uh, and, you know, and the thing with, uh, and, and the thing once again, it's the last gasp that you see of Joe Crothers, who left the show as Joe, uh, right. in, in the straitjacket. Uh, marvelous, marvelous. He really knew how to portray a lunatic. And he did a uh, good job, no doubt. Oh, marvelous. And, and they cut him off the wind cliff. Well, that's the end of Joe. But of course, in Dark Shadows, you can always come back. And he comes back on to do a last gasp as Lieutenant Forbes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the whole business is, uh, that this time, uh, Barnabas creeps up on Lieutenant Forbes so they, they can't shoot him, shoot him with the arrow. And then uh, Ben takes over the role of Louis Edmonds in terms of the... And so what he really gives you is is that there are some things you can change and if you try to change history and there are some things that you can't, which is the Twilight Zone kind of take on it in that episode with Russell Johnson where he went back to try and prevent the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. So uh, it's... Uh, it, it's it, and I agree with Mary. I, I mean, actually, I love seeing Thayer David in the Ben Stokes role again. And uh, this time they talk about Ben Ben killing off Nathan Forbes as well as Natalie Dupre. And the only thing that I regret is is that uh, Grayson Hall lost her French, French accent completely by this time. And uh, so she's coming across like someone from the Bronx. But I, but still in all, uh, and Carolyn Groves, who played Vicky, was great, and they, and they brought back Roger Davis as uh, Peter, and uh, they restaged the hanging scene and everything. Uh, only this time, uh, you know, and and yes, Lara Parker and. Barnabas said, "I want. I should have. I, I should have burned her. I should have burned her with fire a long time ago. Never would have had half the problems that he did. Uh, but it worked. It worked. And and uh, so my take on it is, I think that scene five uh, is is the best of 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 all the scenes in this long block." And it really takes us to what Dark Shadows is really about. Yeah, I have to say, I quite, I, I enjoyed it. 
I have to just want to say when they first went back and you felt like, oh my god, are they doing a repeat? Because it did feel like a repeat for the first the first episode. And um and at first I was I was kind of like, oh no. Because um uh, just to give you a little bit of um background here, um we're we're currently in the um season two of Bewitched. And basically we just got to the birth of Tabitha. Well, Obviously, Elizabeth Montgomery was pregnant and was giving birth, so basically production shut down for three months. So what they did was they took two, three episodes from season one and just replayed them, put a little thing in the beginning, and he just had the same episode replayed again. And we had like three of these episodes in one block when we were doing Bewitched. So now here, now I'm watching Dark Shadows, but this is like, oh my God, we're not going to replay this whole thing, but we didn't. That's why it was quite nice. We kind of got the replay. Right. Right. And I thought that was very, very clever. But when I first saw the replay, I thought, oh, my God, what is this, a month full of replays? I was um, telling about Bewitched was a replay of episodes, rerun right. episodes being um, thrown at us something new. But I like that Dark Shadows was able to do that and put a twist on it. And they did change history. Um, and then my guess when Willie brings um, Barnabas awake in 1969, is this yes. supposed to be... Willie, when Willie first brings Barnabas awake, like well, he you... has to come back the same way in the order of time, but he has to come back the same way Willie found him. So. They figured that. They figured that one out. It's not 1969, is it? It's more 1967, right? They, supposedly, they re- yeah, yeah. It, it, it was, and and of course, it was kind of natural for Julia to expect that Barnabas would appear to her in the cemetery the way he dematerialized in the cemetery when Peter Bradford brought him back. But apparently uh, they figured out, well, no, that's not the way that's going to happen because he didn't. And uh, it was was great to bring Willie back into all this and he had for a long time and, 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 you know, and there's John Carlin chewing up the scenery and everything. And, uh, you know, and to realize uh, that and he had to convince Julia because Julia was very skeptical of the of, of this, and she tried to fight him. But John Carlin said, "No, no, no. This is if this is the way it happened before, it's got to happen this way again." And he literally dragged her out to the mausoleum, and then you got that where he's uh, now. The one thing that I I can't figure out is how he was. Uh, so he wakes up in the mausoleum uh, in his. 18th century garb, right. and the next thing you know, the next scene, he's in his 20th century suit. So, did <laughs> well, they didn't bring he just have the jacket on, the, the long overcoat thingy? He had, no, he, he was did in Did he have the cravat and all that? Yeah, he had the 1795 stuff when he when he woke well, up in the coffin and he was he was choking. And But then they, so they wake him up, the next thing you know, he's he's in his suit. Uh, he's in his uh, 20th century suit. You know how I put that together? I assume that Willie picked him up in 1967. And then when we see Barnabas next, all that time has passed. You know, all the, you know, the Adam character storyline right. mm-hmm. passed, so he's no longer a vampire. Because he's not a vampire when you see him in the suit any longer. He wakes up right. as a vampire. Right. It would be a vampire. And then I assume right. that we just jump back to the present time and that Barnabas's life story went on for two years. But since we already seen that, we don't need to receive that. Right. Maybe. So when he appears in modern suit, I assume that, so that's how I kind of looked at it. Willie, Willie wakes, wakes him up in 1967 and then everything happens because he's not a vampire and he wakes up as a vampire when Willie wakes him up. Right. So no, he, 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 
I got a bit confused at that little thing. I was like, oh, okay, well, if I say the World Cup of 1967, when Willie was it, you know, um, what's his McCall, looking for the family jewels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which wakes up Barnabas, and then time passes, and then, yeah, that's how I kind of took it. I don't know. I don't know if that's how we're supposed to take it. But then Julie was there to wake up. Because Julie, I'm getting confused. Julie wasn't there to pick, wake up Barnabas with Willie Wishy. No. No. Willie on his own, right? right. So that would make sense. And when we see Barnabas again, it's 1969. That's right. That's right. It's kind of like the body is now. Whether Barnabas had to live through all those centuries again, uh, until 1969, or whether his the spirit of Barnabas is just transferred from the 1796 body to the 1969 body. That's a that's anybody's guess. Well, quantum uh, theory and all that stuff is really just a mind blower, anyway. Well, the whole idea of changing history—I've always loved that. Uh, what if this had happened? And what if, and the dark shadow starts to get into that, and uh, I think they go back again uh, in another in, in, in another point. Uh, but because uh, they try it three times, the charm uh, from talking to Roger Davis uh, told me—he told me Dan Curtis told him. Uh, that that Dan Cur- and Dan Curtis, by the way, directed all the episodes in this particular block, which was kind of unusual uh, because uh, you know usually you have the different directors. But in this 70, 1796, Dan, Dan Curtis directed all the episodes. Uh, and I think kind of, the movie comes on the back of this very soon, doesn't it? The pre-production of the movie idea. Yeah. Yes, we're, we're in January 1969 when this was happening. And when does the movie get come out? 1970. 70 and 70. I think Dan Curtis was getting involved, and Mary, Mary can correct me, but I think Dan Curtis was starting to get very intrigued with directing, and he cut his teeth on directing some of these Dark Shadows episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, he originally did yeah. it with one. Yeah, yeah. He yeah, Lila, Lila Swift. Lila Swift was really a mentor to Dan. Yeah. Uh, he learned how to direct, and believe me, the first few days the, the actors were kind of nervous um, because it was their first time doing that. And um, as with any new director, you, know, you don't know how it will go. Um, but Dan was beginning to once he got the episodes under his belt, he began to formulate. Well, what if I did a movie? Right. Oh, boy, they've never had a soap opera become a movie before. Why don't I do that? And as as we've read. Um, he, he really wanted to do an all-out horror movie. He wanted to do a, a he wanted yes. the idea of a classic Hammer film is yes. what he wanted to do, and he could do that in a movie and couldn't do that on the series because, as we've said, it was, it was big daytime. There were only certain things you could show and do in daytime, but as we all know, he went full out in the House of Dark Shadows. But but so he did cut his teeth in this 1796 block, uh, so to speak. And uh, I think that his, you know, once again, you know, the writing was very. I think I thought it was very solid here. Um, you had, um, uh, you know, the idea, and this is really never explored, but the idea of uh, Ben. Uh, becoming now, you know, it's it said. Well, how could Ben become a murderer? That the uh, the Amazon Prime 
uh, closed captioning uh, something to the extent that this was out of uh, Ben Stokes's character to murder. But what they're forgetting was that he was imprisoned uh, for burglary, and this is where Joshua took him. Uh, he took him out of jail. Uh, so that there, so that Ben Stokes had a checkered past, uh, but and of course he never would have done this. Uh, he never would have done this uh, voluntarily. But Ben was desperate uh, because he wanted to protect Barnabas, and uh, this was the. Uh, but so it was a it was a way of getting rid of two characters at once. Uh, although why Grayson Hall appeared in that particular episode as Natalie, that's the only time she reappeared as Natalie. Maybe somebody had remembered, oh, you know, Natalie's around here. So, you know, so she got a day. Uh, but so in general, I think, yeah, I, I think that it was a great tour de force, uh, to go back and to change history in certain aspects and not in others and to save Vicky. And when last we see Vicky and Jeff are going out west, uh, to, to, to get, to get a new life for themselves together. And that's where that ends. And that's where the character of Vicky Winters ends for good on Dark Shadows. Although you will see Peter Bradford coming back, and we're not going to talk about that. But but that that's the final farewell to Vicky Winters. We get we get the happy and we get the Victoria Winters happy ending, the holiday right. ending, and and they're saying goodbye to Barnabas. Yeah, go ahead. Mary. I was going to say that also um, following up there, Tom. Again, by having Stokes as a featured character or Ben in the past. The writers are setting up is now we're going to see Stokes in the present, and he's going to have a connection to the past. He's the the, the long lost descendant of Ben Stokes. So I just again think it was very clever on the writers' part. They knew what they were plotting ahead. Uh, so let's have him him do that. But um, um, Thayer David, I think again was devoted. The character of Ben was devoted to Barnabas and. Certainly, he yeah. couldn't do when Barnabas said to him uh, when we were ending seventeen nine five the first round. You know, please, Ben. You know, put a stake through my heart, please. You know, I, 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 you have to do this for me. But Ben couldn't do that. Well, he was about to actually. Right, Angelique stopped him. Um, right. But he really was a devoted friend, and anything to save his friend, uh, I believe he would do, yeah. um, based on the the deep, deep friendship that they had. Yeah. I, I, I always felt it was a shame that they, it wouldn't have been great if they somehow transported Ben Stokes into the 20th century Collinwood and he meets up with, uh, Professor Stokes. That would have been, that would have been a lot of fun. And, uh, bringing that into it because Willie and Julia never really knew Ben. Right. Uh, and that was, uh, so, you know, and, and I think that would have been a great trio, but, but, but still, uh, being what it was, um, and, uh, Curtis told, uh, Roger Davis, we want to go back to 1795, 1796, because that's where it really became a hit. So Curtis felt that the show should go back, according to Roger Davis. Curtis felt that the show should definitely go back, uh, to that time to, you know, to pick up, to pick up the fans again. I, I can't say this for sure, but I think there may have been a feeling that the, what they were developing was Quentin, with Quentin and my, they, they were looking for it, but it was a little slow. 
And I think that they wanted to insert that in to get the fans back. And I think they did with that. I also think that it actually shows that the greatest love story of Dark Shadows is not Barnabas, but it's Barnabas and Victoria Winters. Yeah, true that. All he cares about is her happiness. And even if he has to throw his own heart away for her, he will do it. He, this is the only time. It's undying love. And I always say the greatest mm. isn't Barnabas and Josette that were led to believe. It's Barnabas and Victoria. He'll do anything for her. He'll go above and beyond. He'll, he'll go back in time to make sure that she has. And that's what he did. Love. It doesn't get any did. more romantic than that. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. But, right. but, but then once Vicky's gone, then it gets back to the Josette thing again. Yeah, uh, and he goes like a like a bouncing ball. Uh, and uh, I, I think that they could have. I think that after Victoria Winters goes, I do. I mean, you know, I know we'll we'll get to that, but I do think that they probably could have got a bit more adventurous in Barnabas's love life and keep bringing up that old shoe horse again. So that can yes, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Whatever works. <laughs> Now, this makes us the best storyline and worst storyline, where basically, in um, as many less words as possible, tell you what your favorite storyline of this block was, your worst storyline of this block. Starting with you, Vicky, what was your best storyline? I'm ready ready for you this time. You know, I'm actually, I I was really all over the werewolf story, because I was ready for the Lon Chaney action to start. So I was really happy about that, because, you know, I mean, I think that the fans and everybody else wanted to see that next step in the supernatural kind of sense coming to the show. And I know that, and that as far as the, the, the one that I didn't enjoy, I'm sorry, but Elizabeth being obsessed with dying and getting buried alive, that was getting tedious. And I hated to see, I hated just to see, well, you, there's reasons for that happening. I know, but I wish they would have done something different other than make the strong, you know, woman look so, you know, weak and, defenseless and and not really helpless i guess because she had a plan but i just didn't really enjoy that as much as you know probably some people that's my take what about yourself tom the best as far as i'm concerned as i said before was the 1796 flashback uh and the reprise i thought that was marvelously done i it was. thought it was uh it was a great foray into changing history uh and uh you know, and it gave us a chance. Unfortunately, it was a third actress, but it gave us a chance to whatever happened to Vicky uh, and uh, and Jeff. And and the worst in the 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 start of the Quentin Collins thing was so, in my view, was so slow. It is, and, and it maybe is. maybe if they had had uh, Dave David Selby on for more than three episodes of that entire block, which was forty four episodes, I think it might have uh, been a little bit more of a pickup. Uh, Assuming and, they had a reason for this, so. Well, you know, uh, it, it 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 just. It, it was it was torture. It was really torture to watch because, uh, you know, because between David and Amy uh, talking for endless episodes and arguing with each other about uh, whether the game should be played right, uh, and uh, the uh, you know, and the, the 
and and, also, and they were of course they you know David Selby was very was silent as well as well they wanted for him two to months for two he months he said he didn't have to worry about anything for two he months was, he had a very no easy life. job it was a very easy <laughs> job for him he had also, to fight over the teleprompter along with everyone else. <laughs> Also, Terry Crawford is Beth, and let's give Beth her due. You know, she gets her, right. and you'll we'll see her talking a lot more. She actually, in the dream, it's reveals that it's revealed that she actually talks. Terry Crawford is kind of interesting. She has her, she has a clinical psychology PhD, and she went to my alma mater, Long Island University, for the PhD, which had a PhD, and I found out about it because their PhD program they wanted everybody to go full time, but they made an allowance for Terry Crawford. Uh, because she was an actress in Dark Shadows during the day. They let her go at night. But uh, that's my understanding. But uh, it was it was interesting. And, of course, you know, uh, nice to see Don Briscoe uh, do a lot of emoting uh, as the Lon Chaney werewolf. But I do think that... Uh, that 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 was the worst. That was the worst because it was just too slow. It gets better later on. It does, it but I mean, it's a yeah. build-up. It's a build-up. What was your favorite storyline and your worst storyline of this block? Well, I want to go back to when I was a kid watching it, and I really liked the Turn of the Screw storyline. I was relating to the kids on how frightened they were. Uh, I liked, again, Barnabas' role there of trying to help the children, remembering his sister Sarah, uh, ultimately who he couldn't save. He wants to save this child, Amy. Right. Uh, so I really enjoyed that. And the, the storyline I don't remember being creeped out by was Elizabeth in the coffin. That was very creepy. Um, as an adult looking back, um, I, now looking now, I should say, at these episodes, uh, I love that Quentin was introduced. Uh, I, I found that well, it's exciting to have this new talented actor, and I still really enjoy that, um, and probably still am creeped out by Elizabeth in the coffin alive, <laughs> and nobody knew it. <laughs> well, who wants to be stuck in a coffin for one? So right there, I mean, just imagining and cha- you know th- that being you would, would definitely be. Now, for my favorite storyline, I I like the Clinton storyline. I don't know, there's something I like about it um it's about what storyline quentin's storyline um, amy okay. and david but i think that has to do a lot with amy and david and i like that my it opens up a lot of questions for me about where is this going what are we doing and what how is this all going to turn into something and it's quite nice to see that so i quite like that um my least favorite is Elizabeth dying storyline, and that has to be because we've seen this storyline before, and now we're seeing it play through. So when it was finished, and she's walking around outside that coffin, being cheerful and being loving again, I was thinking, "Thank Christ, we can finally move on." And that's you know, so that was my <laughs> right. Well, this brings us to the end of our Dark Shadows. Now, next month, we'll be covering episodes from February 1969 and March 1969. And I want to thank Mary O'Leary for joining us. Thank you, Mary, for joining us for the Literary License Podcast. Hey, you're, you're welcome, Keith. Uh, I really enjoyed myself. We love having you. Now, of course, our next episode will be back to Kings of Horror segment, which will be booked to screen. We'll be covering Cabal by Clyde Barker and the 19th. 87 film Nightbreed, which was directed by Clyde Barker. 
And of course, we'll be continuing our Bewitched and our two for one next month, which will be the 80s, recovering Killer Party from 1986 and Night of the Demons from 1988. And so what I want to say is good night for myself and good night, Vicky. Good night, everybody. Be safe. Good night, Tom. It was great seeing you guys again and uh, good night. And before we say good night to you, Mary, please remind us what the name of the documentary is and where they'll be able to yes. find it and see this. Dark Shadows and Beyond, the Jonathan Fridge story, will make its premiere on Tuesday, October 5th on Apple TV, as well as other digital platforms. Please watch it and send me your feedback. Absolutely. Uh, also, on, uh, also um, there is on Sunday, October 3rd, a uh, online uh, YouTube, MPI Media, is having a question and answer session with David Selby, Laura Parker, James Storm, Marie Wallace, and myself about the documentary. So please tune into that. Now, of course, all those all that information will be in our show notes, and they'll also be included in our newsletter, which will be out next week. So make sure that you sign up for that, and, or make sure you look down below of where you're actually watching us on whatever podcast platform you're watching us, um, and all that information that this is going to will be in our show notes. So we'll see you next week for Kings of Horror, The Ball, by Clive Barker and Mike Lee from 1988, directed by Clive Barker.